This episode is sponsored by the Real Estate Foundation of BC. REFBC is a philanthropic organization that supports sustainable, equitable, and socially just relationships with land and water. Learn more about the foundation's grants and initiatives at refbc.com. Dara Kelly till squeak, uh, till squeak. So, um, so welcome. It's a good day. Um, my name is Dara Kelly and I come from La Camel and I carry a name, Quiquihas, which comes from Tsialis or Chehalis. Wow. Can you tell us what else you said in that? Was that good morning and, uh, your name? Yeah. Wow. And uh, do you enjoy, uh, learning about more about the language, um, like, has that been something that's interested you? Yeah, it's. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I know a lot, um, but it's a. It's a constant source of fascination. Um, I think I was inspired by taking a course at at UBC in my undergraduate degree. I took Hunkaminum. Um, you know, for the two years uh, as part of a Bachelor of Arts program. Um, but when I when I lived in New Zealand, um, you know, there's I have a lot of friends who are quite fluent in Maori, and I was often in environments where um, Maori language was ex- exclusively spoken, right. um, particularly with, you know, tribal meetings. So um, when I returned home to Canada, um, it it also was an important aspect of of just a, at least bare minimum being able to um, orient myself wherever I am. That's amazing. Can we start perhaps with your background because I think that your work is really important, and I'm interested to understand how you got there. Um, what, you are from La Camel First Nation. Can you tell us a little bit about your family background um, and sort of that journey leading up to going to university? Hmm. Um. So my father is Patrick Kelly. Uh, my mother is Darlene Kelly. Um, so through my father's lineage is our connection to Le Camel. Um, and, and deeper than that, um, our, so I carry a name from Tsialis and the connection there is through my great grandmother, um, Maggie Penyer. Um, and my great grandfather, Hank Penyer, um, whom, you know, they were married. Um, but I grew up in the city in Vancouver. Um, we moved to Vancouver when I was about four years old and I grew up in Granville Island. So right in False Creek. Um, so yeah, my upbringing was very much a, a city life, um, False Creek was an incredible place to grow up. It was not the place that it is today. Um, it's very sort of upscale now, but in the 80s, it was um, 1986 was when Expo 86 oh, wow. uh, was in Vancouver. And so it was a really industrial area at the time. Um, but yeah, it was it was beautiful, you know, um, being able to grow up in a neighborhood that was largely without cars. So as kids, you know, we were just biking and running and, you know, playing everywhere all the time. So, yeah, it was really, 
really awesome. Did you do you have strong ties to your community, or did you have um, an indigenous community there that um, you were connected to? Uh, no, not in the city. Um, but we always we've always stayed connected with our family um, out in the Fraser Valley. So, um, and then my mom moved back to. Uh, DeRoche in when my brother was eight years old. That would have been when I was nine. Um, so I was always coming back and forth to the valley to, to come and, um, be with my mom. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of, it was actually quite a stark contrast, right? Growing up in downtown Vancouver and then having a, a, a second life that often, um, it was it was a duality that uh, both worlds didn't really ever meet. If that makes sense, I had all these these friends that really didn't see the res life, and then this 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 res life and family who really didn't see a lot of what was what it was like for me growing up in the city. So um, yeah, it was it was. I feel like I've held that duality all my life. I. I really find that interesting, and I think that it's something that so many people uh, don't understand or it's hard for them to see um, because I, I grew up in a similar circumstance where uh, my community is Chihuahua First Nation. I've never lived on reserve, um, and then my mother was part of the 60 Scoop, so uh, we had family out in White Rock. Uh, my my non-biological grandmother had like a million-dollar home, a very nice community, and so when I would visit our community, whether it was for a funeral or a gathering, it was completely different living circumstances, uh, different perspectives on the world, different challenges. Um, and it really taught me how hard, I suppose, life can be. Um, but the, the, there's there's a stronger community there. There's there's deeper bonds, I think, uh, than people realize on reserve. Um, there's more trust. There's, to me, perhaps less judgment when it comes to material things. Um, there's more um, a community spirit when you're at a gathering. You're, it feels like you're perhaps less judged. Everybody's welcome. There's those elements. Um, but then seeing like uh, the different financial circumstances that other people are in, um, it, it taught me the, the differences between the two worlds. And I think that Carrie Lynn Victor, who was a, a past podcast guest, shared something similar that she was um, working on her art career out in Vancouver, and then she'd return and she felt that kind of two world separation where um, she was uh, like, she had the res life when she was in Vancouver, and then she'd go back to the community and she was treated like she was uh Caucasian in her speaking, that she was very eloquent, very, uh, her words were all correct. And so there was, she got it from both sides. And I think that that's so interesting because it's, there's two different cultures, there's two different approaches. And I'm just wondering, um, what your experience was like in regards to that. Did you, did you gain anything from being able to see those two different worlds? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a natural fluency that you, um, you develop just being able to navigate within both worlds sort of on on a dime. You know, you could be in the city one day and then the same day you're out in the res with family and you just you just are adapt to whatever environment you're in. Um yeah, and I I mean I think 
I was I ever since I was very young, I've always been um very shy, very introverted, um and very academically oriented. So, you know, even I guess even being no matter where I was, I was reading and I was um immersed in a lot of like children's fantasy. Um, literature. That was my sort of place that I went. Um, but yeah, so I, but I also have like really strong memories of, you know, being only a year difference from my brother. And, you know, we were just kids. And I think it's just normal, you know, you, when you're kids, you're just biking and scrambling around in the bush and climbing trees that was our thing we would climb trees just just like absolutely absurd if i think about it today you know the things you do behind your parents back and you never tell your parents that you know you were like scrambling and and waving around in the top of a tree um but that was just normal right building forts in the back of you know i remember my um my my auntie and uncle lived just um sort of at the entrance of La Camel territories coming from the city. And so I remember being back there and form, you know, building forts and things like that. And that was the cousin experience was just a, a lot of play running. Um, like it, it was that kind of natural athleticism, if, if that makes sense, where you're just outside all day long. Yeah. 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 I find that that's something perhaps we're, we're needing more of. Um, I saw a report that they were saying that um, we're going to start prescribing people to go outdoors, that that's going to be something that we do to start to um, address some of the challenges we're facing with anxiety and depression, that we're going to start prescribing people going outdoors. And it's like, that sounds, that sounds good. Um, but Within indigenous communities, the beauty is that there is just this go outdoors, have fun, um, explore, be be a child. And and when I talk to family members or people who um, are in their 50s or 60s, they talk about how they would just go out into the forest and they wouldn't come back for five hours and they would just be out there exploring. And I think that there's part of your development that you go through that helps you grow as a person that creates a sense of independence, a sense of responsibility, um, a sense of caring for your the people you're with when you're out there because you're like, well, if you fall out of that tree, I'm the only person around. So I have to help you in those circumstances. And when I was um, with friends on reserve, uh, one of the experiences was like, we all got stung by, we entered a beehive by accident and we all got stung brutally. Um, and I had to carry one of the, uh, one of the other kids back because he had gotten stung so many times he was starting to have like a reaction. And so those experiences are so unique and you don't get them when you're in the city. You don't get the, where are we again? Like we're lost in the forest. Oh, like we better start to find our way back. It's getting dark. Those kind of exploratory experiences. And you start, you're having to go farther and farther into Northern BC um, or um, into the interior to start to have these experiences. And I think that it's, it's unfortunate. And I don't know, I don't know what the solution is to something like that. I, I don't know. I think a lot of it's just the messaging of of your parents and your caregivers. Um, and, of course, the world's different. You know, it's actually not totally safe um, for kids necessarily, depending on where you are, right, to, to just wander anymore. 
Um, yeah, I, I think it's really, it's really challenging, but I do attribute, um, you know, that playfulness and that, um, that inclination to just be kids. I think that that has formed my, um, identity. Cause I know that, um, uh, my brother has, has said to me, like, you know, we had no sense of gender really. Like I sort of think, um, I guess I was a tomboy, but I, there was no sense of girls, boys, you know, the idea of, of what a girl can do or what boys can or should be doing. It was just, you know, we were just having fun. Yeah. So, um, and I think like, like I have a love of hiking today, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about my well-being and my body, not necessarily for fitness purposes, but thinking like, are my lungs doing what they should be doing? Is my heart pumping the way it should be pumping, you know? And all of, I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking, okay, if I sit at a laptop or a computer for too long, it's not doing, my body's not operating the way it's supposed to. And so that's where I draw on that connection to my childhood. Yeah, I think that that connection is so important and it's so um, curious that it's not more uh, popular, that it's, I think we're starting to see inclinations of it, but having that understanding of like, your heart beats every single day. And so how do you make sure that it, if it is beating every day, that it's beating properly? And we just got a book called Breathe. And this person uh, was a journalist, but they dove in and traveled the world to understand different breathing techniques and understanding that, and I didn't know this, that your nose is actually a dehumidifier. And so we've got all this equipment in our house to dehumidify the room. But if you're properly breathing through your nose, you actually get more oxygen per breath. So a lot of people, when they start running or hiking, they're like, well, it's harder to breathe through my nose. But you actually get more oxygen um, and it actually gets rid of a lot more viruses and bacteria and stuff. And um, I was talking to Paul... Uh, Van Westendorp, who's our provincial apiculturist, he's our beekeeper, and he was talking about how if you get stung by a bee, to the the best thing for you is to do nothing, um, because the, your body has a natural response to that. And um, if you have arthritis, getting stung by a bee can actually be a really good thing, um, because the chemicals that your body creates to get to flush that stuff out is really positive for your body. And so those experiences are good for you. And I think that it's so interesting. I also interviewed Stephen Hu, who uh, he did wrote 105 hikes in and around southwestern BC. And um, the connection you have with the environment is something that's so good for you because then you start to see how you're connected with the world. You start to realize that there's like you can do the same hike over and over again and see different things every time. Mushrooms, trees, um, like there's different life throughout the sounds of the birds there are people who are bird watchers like people who search for mushrooms people who search for trees there's so much to experience out there and i think that that gives you a greater humility when you go out in the world the other one that i always think of is uh like astrology and looking up into space and realizing how small we are and how connected we all really are and i think that those experiences are are becoming more important because we are on Zoom more, we're on Teams, we're on these meeting systems that make our day kind of go by because now you can fit in five different meetings into one day and you haven't gone outside, but you've been, I guess, more efficient, but you've missed out on having that proper balance. And I think that that's, 
that's something you you enjoy more outdoors when you're more connected when it's right in your backyard but when you're in a city it's harder to access what was your journey like to going to university um like was that a clear cut path for you what was that experience like um I think it was fairly clear cut in the sense that I didn't know what else I was going to do um, because I, um, I guess in my life I've always had mentors in some way, shape, or form. So I'm talking about in elementary school I had a teacher who um, identified me it's a vague memory because this would have been when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old. Um, so she identified and she recommended that I apply for an accelerated program for high school. Um, so these are called mini schools in Vancouver. Um, and so I did, I applied to, to some, two accelerated programs and I got into one of them. Now, it's a strange process at the age of 13 going for an interview. You know, you go with your parents, but, you know, you're being interviewed to be in this this accelerated program. Um, I got in. It was it was amazing. Um, I probably rarely had uh, an amazing high school experience because of that, where um, I was in a cohort of students, the same 28 students right through from from grade 8 through grade 12, um, which meant that, you know, it was like a cohort style. We, we You didn't have to go and be lost in a sea right. of, you know, 1,500 students. It was, um, yeah, and the, and the idea was more of a holistic style of, of experience and learning and, and connecting with other grades as well. So it was kind of like this little family, really, a family of 150 Um and so we would, and and we, we would go skiing and snowboarding, and we had these, you know, whole school trips away and things like that. Um, so it nurtured, like I said, ever since I was really young, I was always academically um, good at writing, good at math. When I was young, got to a certain point, and I just lost interest and really wasn't connecting with math and science. Um but always had that nurturing environment. Um, I was always in places with friends who had shared interests. Um, I did not experience bullying. I think that that's also probably a rare experience for high school. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I was ready to start thinking about university, um, it was just kind of natural, right? It was like, well, yeah, everybody's going to university, so I guess that's what I'm doing too. Um, and I, I liked learning, so it, it didn't feel like it was a burden or anything like that. Um, I didn't have much of an imagination at the time of a lot of my friends went to Eastern universities, McGill or um, Concordia or Queens. Um, I just applied to UBC I think I applied to SFU and UVic. Um, didn't get into the other two programs, but I did get into UBC. And had the intention of applying. I mean, I was in the science program for my first year of university, which I did terribly at. Um, failed almost every single course. 
um, probably with the exception of my English course. <laughs> so I was in a science program. We had to take like one arts um, credit and I did fine, obviously, in that one. Um, but yeah, it was it was quite frustrating because I didn't really understand, I guess, the culture of science. Um, I was very surprised at how competitive it, it was once you were in the program. I didn't know that there was all these sort of cultural values around, you know, they let a whole bunch of students in to first year and by second year, like 50% have dropped out. Oh, wow. That kind of thing where it's like, you know, it's it's designed to be competitive and you have to perform. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, like it's pretty cutthroat. Sink or swim. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And um, like I said, I didn't grow up in an environment where competitive academics was nurtured. So I did, I sort of missed actually the whole cultural piece there yeah. and just sunk because I didn't really understand that I was supposed to be competing with the other students. I was looking for another group to support, to connect, to do like, you know, group learning and things like that and just found nobody at UBC willing to um, kind of join me in my learning journey. And I struggled and didn't understand what was going on. And Was that discouraging at all? Like a feeling of like, you're, you've done so well up until this point. Did like did you struggle at all with th that feeling, um, or was it easy to kind of uh, switch gears and, and take a different path? Yeah, I I did struggle, um, but it was also a new experience for me to fail. So if it it hadn't happened before, so I didn't sort of have any predetermined. Um, pathway or emotions around it. Right. I just sort of failed and was like, whoa, what happened? I didn't, I, I like, I barely had any sense making around that. Um, but one of the things I did know was university is expensive and I can't afford to, um, I was sponsored by Le Camel and I knew that, you know, I can't afford to just keep trying and wasting a bunch of money. So I decided to take a year off. And in that, in that year is when I uh, worked at a coffee shop downtown uh, with the really clear intention that I wanted to travel. Um, and that's when I went to India. Um, so I saved up and went to India for six months. And how did you know you wanted to travel? What, what, um, how did you know that that was something that was in, in your sights? Did you have, did you experience Expo 86 or something? And you were like, oh, I've seen these cultures. Maybe I'd need to go experience some of these things. What called to you to that? Um, there was probably, um, so I remember there was a couple of memories from early to like early teenagehood when I was fascinated. There was movies that I had seen that I was fascinated with India. And now I'm trying to remember what were those movies. Um, but yeah, it was, oh, it was elephants. Yeah, I've had a, a fascination with elephants ever since I was really little. And I, I don't remember why, um, but I had, you know, elephant books. And so I sort of pieced together a rationale for why I needed to go to India based on, um, yeah, I definitely wanted to see elephants. I also knew that I wanted to travel, but was sort of had this abstract idea of wanting to go somewhere that 
was not, it was a polar opposite to Canadian culture, what I imagined to be Canadian culture. I thought India would be the polar opposite in terms of, I remember describing to my parents and saying I wanted um, different orientations around um, religion, um, just like the sense of society as being um, really loud, bright, colorful, spicy, you know, all these things I sort of was just like, I wanted a shock value experience, but not so much for voyeurism, if that makes sense. I wanted it for the experience of almost shocking me to life. Because I think of that, I think maybe that was how I was processing the failing, you know, it's just kind of like I was bored and just felt a bit um, helpless. Right. And so this, this like wanting to go travel and going somewhere that was so vibrant um, was a way of just saying like, bringing me back to life, if that makes sense. That but does. also, um, I don't speak any other languages. So I, I was thinking, okay, it has to be an English speaking country, which in hindsight is like fairly limited. If I had talked that through with somebody, I could have learned another language and gone somewhere. But yeah, what was, what was India like? Did it meet your expectations? What experiences did you gain from that? Well, I was backpacking, so, you know, you never really know what to expect. I was traveling very cheap. At the time, I was only 20 years old, which I learned once I got there that most travelers go to, you know, Europe or um, they kind of travel in easier places, if that makes sense. Um, and India is kind of the next, like, it's a level up for an experienced traveler, partly because of you know, you have to, like safety concerns and how big it is and um, just how much it is. But of course, that's what I was seeking. So for me, it was the adventure and the excitement and like, I'm ready for like, all the buzz. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it was, it was pretty scary, but thrilling. At the same time, it, it was everything that I had imagined. Um, I met a Canadian through the snowboard club at UBC because I was a snowboarder. And so I through the snowboard club at UBC, um, there was a Canadian who had a friend in Mumbai. And so I landed in Delhi spent some time in Delhi and then took a train to Mumbai, which was about 20, mm, 18 hours, I think. Wow. Um, and it was great. It was great to connect. Um, at the time he was the consulate for Canada, which I didn't know that I was meeting a consulate for Canada. He was 24 years old. He was really young. Yeah. Um, but it was a great connection. He, you know, he, it was a nice stopping place. He was, you know, very wealthy in in terms of sort of the basic standard of living. Um, so I stayed with him for a month, and um, and then I carried on and did some more traveling. Um, hopped on another train, twenty five hours to Kolkata, and then so I I traveled around the north of India um, 
And then for the last leg of my trip, traveled down to sort of the the hot beaches in Goa and uh, Kolkata, or sorry, Kerala. Um, yeah, and so it was it was amazing. It was an experience that I will never forget. Um, I met incredible people. the The community of travelers, I think, when you're um, when you're traveling alone is is always really supportive and you know people look out for you one of the things i noticed um lots of people when i returned asked me like are you were you scared to travel around as a woman um a single young woman um and i remember thinking i would watch other travelers who were often in pairs and I would watch how men traveled um, and I was treated quite distinctly differently because what I what ended up happening is um, many Indians would ask me you know where's your group or where's your partner or, you know, and I would say, well, I'm traveling alone. And immediately it became like, suddenly they felt that they had to protect me from the rest of the world. Oh, interesting. And so they were like, oh my God, you're traveling alone. You need somewhere to stay. Come and come and have um, dinner at our place. You know, you've got to be careful out there. So they were like, suddenly rallying to make sure that I was okay. And I was, I was, um, so I ended up staying with like a lot of Indian families. Um, it happened multiple times. And I got a different sense of the country than I think the travelers who were who were only exclusively staying in, you know, cheap hotels or hostels or, um, you know, often were getting ripped off. You're getting haggled, you know, the the taxis or rickshaws or whatever were um were exploiting them as rich tourists whereas my experience was not that i didn't get ex- i mean i did you know it's it's natural you people know that you're from the west especially when i said i was from canada um but yeah my experience was was not what i think most people expected it to be which was that i was going to be exploited i was the person who was like wow, we have to support and help this young woman <laughs> who maybe naively is traveling by herself in a dangerous country. That's how they saw it. Right. Were there any experiences being in those homes that were perhaps unique or where you got a different perspective? Because the reason people typically travel is for the cuisine, the culture, you being able to enter these people's homes and kind of see behind the culture of tourism. Um, often they're like those main roads perhaps look really nice and then you go a few roads back and it's a different place. Did you gain any experiences and or gain any insights into relationships with people? Because it sounds like they they went out of their way for you in a really positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one experience where... Um, in order to extend my visa, I had to travel into Nepal um, just for like a 24-hour period while you renew, you have to go to the office, whatever. Um, there was one dinner where there was a Nepalese um, man who 
did the same thing, invited me to come and have dinner with his family. So I got on uh, his the back of his motorcycle and he drove me to his family's home, quite rural and quite remote. And it was like a mud, a mud home. Um, and I was fed really well and they played music for me. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was like really a family life. And, and I can imagine that for them, I don't know what they thought I was doing or who I was. Um, and then he delivered me back into the city, but I, I got to try, um, cuisine, you know, home cuisine, which is, you know, they cater to the, the Westerners in, in, um, Kathmandu and it's like weird pizzas and things like that. Like, yeah. So I was happy to actually not eat the tourist food. It was, it was nice. I got to try this, um, fermented rice drink. Which was came in like this huge, kind of looked like a wooden keg, um, but it was <laughs> it was like this massive um, drink, yeah. And so coming back, what was that ex- like? What did you take away from that? Did you have more perspective on where you wanted to go, or uh, being able to see that culture, um, wanting to do something with your own? Where did that all kind of come into play? Um. Well, I think I, I think the experience allowed me to develop a stronger sense of my own intuition, um, and my own sense of, um, you know, I'm, I was developing and testing my own boundaries around risk, risk taking, which I felt strongly before I had left that I didn't feel that you know, be, be staying in Canada really allowed me to do that in a, um, I don't know, in a, in a interesting and sort of healthy way to test your boundaries. And I remember distinctly too. So this would have been 2003, which was only email communication. Really? There was no, it was the starting, starting to hear about Facebook, but really it hadn't, um, yeah, there was nothing. There's no social media. So um, I remember also handwriting. I've always loved handwriting letters. So I handwrote letters, like millions of letters to family and friends back home. And I remember writing um, that I had never truly experienced loneliness until I was in India. And that the experience of true loneliness was I knew at the time it was so important because I just didn't know that that was an, a feeling that I had inside me. Um, and I knew that it was because I had no access to family and no access to friends unless I picked up a phone call and it was quite expensive. So I restricted myself by being so far away and developed emotionally in a way that I could never have anticipated. Right. So, and I know that that changed, it changed my life because I kind of reflected that when we, when I was in Canada, that when you're always having access to your family and your friends, you kind of take that for granted. You just um, lean on that all the time and you, you just, 
I, I knew that it was important to develop that aspect of, of myself. Right. Yeah, you see that a lot now because it's so strange that we have unlimited access to people. You can see 200 of your friends maybe online at a time, and yet people feel more alone than ever. And uh, my partner Rebecca and I like doing that. We like when we travel. We don't send messages. We don't send texts, but we write letters or we use postcards and we just write something to the people who are going to appreciate that form of communication that are going to see that we went out we tried to choose a, a quality card um, that we tried to write something thoughtful not just like hey hope all is well bye we were just like let's share like one experience we had here let's write it down let's be clear about it so that there's um, an intention towards the communication because we can get so hey how are you good how are you uh, what's going on not much you like we get so simplified in our communication that uh, it concerns me because we miss out on the people uh, like the one interesting thing I've always found is it's so hard for people to be able to share their traveling experiences uh, because they feel rushed because you ha it's like it's kind of like a dream when you try and explain your dream that was like super amazing to you to somebody else they're like I don't I don't understand but there are certain people who actually care about what your traveling experience was and what you learned or or what food you tried or um those people who actually are genuinely interested in who you are and I think we can fall into a category of well, I have 10 people I text all the time so I must have 10 really good friends but who are there for you when you're struggling when you're um feeling a little lost or frustrated and it's interesting that you make that comment of like loneliness of really starting to understand that and, and recognizing the people in your life and what their value is because you're disconnected from them and you you realize how important they are because you can't just say that thought that's on your mind and and now you have to write a letter or you have to schedule a phone call to tell them what your thoughts are and I think about that a lot in terms of like we have these moments where we maybe think of someone when we hear a song or something and then we don't act on it. We kind of just go, oh, yeah, that's that means a lot to me that we were we went to that concert together five years ago or we had this experience um, and, and you don't tell the person. And it seems like that's the area I think we could use improvement in our in our culture is figuring out how to have those deeper conversations more regularly where because when I recognize a guest and say like, hey, I really think you're setting a good example. There's this instinct I see within them to be like, no, I'm not perfect. Like, don't get me confused. Like, I'm just a flawed person like everybody else and it's like i I, th I think you you likely are a flawed person but um and we all make mistakes but i think there's something people can learn from you but there's this hesitation to take on that role or to feel like we're we're worthy that we're we set a good example that we can we can do good and that can be recognized i think that that's surprise we we like to think people are really narcissistic and we're all on social media and we're all posting the best glamorous photos of ourselves but there is a part of us that's like not confident in saying like, I set a good example and I'm here to do so. And I hope that that's the message I set for other people. There's like a, a struggle we have with taking up our mantle or being proud of what we've done and accomplished and, and the impact we've had. And I think that it's just interesting that you were able to recognize that on that trip. So like coming home, um, were you, was your plans just to head back to school? Um, or what were you kind of thinking in terms of where you wanted to go when you were coming back? Um, yes, I knew, I think that was part of the journey was, was what am I going to do next? Um, and exploring that and having that time to really think that through. Um, so it was fun. It was, you know, super exhilarating. And I came back and felt, 
um, like a like a changed person. Um, I should also mention that again, when I was twenty and I made that decision to go to India, there was absolutely a narrative in there of wanting to explore this place of the people that we were imagined to be. Interesting. I knew that this place of India was so problematic within our identity as Indians in Canada. And I was trying to understand and unravel that. So my very simple question was, well, who are the Indians then? You know, who were we mistaken for? Right. And that's, you know, such a, again, it's so sort of, uh, it's a blunt way of exploring identity, but it was really important to me to do that because I wanted to then come back to Canada and and have this concrete place to jump from, to say distinctly, I know exactly what I am not. Right. I know exactly um, what the mistake was, you know, in, in terms of I understand who the Indians are now um, and feeling confident then to kind of delve back into the complexity of of being Indian in Canada. Um, so I so I went uh, into the First Nation Studies program. So basically, I just shifted faculties within UBC. Um, and yeah, found a home almost right away. Like it was just such a comfortable place to explore and to be nurtured um, within fairly small groups and cohorts of other students. Um, How did you know that that was the right choice for you? How did you know that uh, moving that faculty into first, did was there like traveling to India, thinking of Indians, that that was like, I want to explore this topic further and understand my community more? Where did that sort of come from to choose uh, First Nation studies? Well, I think it was kind of along the lines of like, what how could this mistake have been so stark, right? Like, historically, how could we have been mistaken for India? Um, So then, you know, I was like, well, where can I explore this question, you know, of of these mistakes? I should also say my, you know, it's not that I didn't have any understanding of the political environment in Canada or BC. My father's been very involved in um, in BC politics and Canadian politics, you know, ever since he was working at Kokolitsa back when he was like 20 years old and um, working with elders and, you know, caring for, for Maggie, my great grandmother. Um, Dad's always been quite a strong political voice. I read uh, one of his I think it was he wrote a satire back in like 1970 um, for a local newspaper about about something very political. And he was making a really clear statement about, you know, the state of indigenous politics at the time. Um, so I had that I had that filtered through my dad's experience. Um, but I knew that the job that I had to do was to walk my own path to figure that out. So, yeah, so it was a bit of like trying to get the the building blocks in place, if, if that makes sense, yeah. getting the nuts and bolts of, of what I also knew 
were the gaps in my high school education. Um, yeah, trying to trying what, to what, do you do, is your da- dad uh, a role model to you in that regard of the politics? Did you see perhaps the struggles that he was facing um, in terms of like running into roadblocks? Because I know being uh, working with the native court workers, we do run into political challenges. Um, did you have like perspectives on that of like um, I want to further these issues or like what was your perception of your father uh, when he was facing, it sounds like, some some good times and some tough times in the political uh, Indigenous realm? Um, I don't think I'd figured that out yet. I didn't figure out... I I've, Yes, my father's been an incredible role model in my life. He's... I've always looked up to him. Makes me emotional. Um, yeah, and he's just... Um, yeah, I'm getting emotional. I've always had an amazing relationship with my father. Like at this stage in my life, I'm 39, and um, we're definitely friends, you know. And in many instances, um, actually more and more colleagues being able to um, kind of be on par, you know, like have like loving to be in indigenous spaces, especially in indigenous economics, and being able to know that we're both sort of shifting and moving, um, hopefully the dial for the next generation. That's amazing. What what did you learn during the beginning part of your education that perhaps stood out to you? Because we're hearing um, I think it's frustrating to hear about how these recoveries are being um, viewed because if you read The Indian Horse or watched the movie, if you um, have any understanding, you knew that Indigenous people did not want their children to go to these schools, mm-hmm. that that was something for over nearly 100 years now, that they did not want their children in these schools. They knew it was not a good place. And we get, um, I listened to an interview with Charles Joseph, who's uh, a carver um, and an Indigenous artist, and he went to Indian residential school, and he talked about how uh, children would pass away, and um, there would be bodies, and the people who ran these schools would to get rid of the bodies, make the children light the match. And I just, it's, I understand Indigenous communities' frustration with the general public when there's this vast disconnect of what's gone on. Um, For him to have that story and for everyday Canadians to feel like, I'm just learning about this now, that when you think of the... The disconnect between the two communities. It's so evident in that moment because most people know about the Holocaust. Most people have an understanding of what took place there. And when I think about how do we bring these two, like we talk about reconciliation. These are the things that, uh, these are the conversations to me that need to take place is um, First Nations communities does not feel like that general public was there for them when we needed them. And it's not like we were in different countries. We were three blocks away from each other, having completely different lived experiences. And so what did you learn during your time of taking those First Nation core studies um, that you took away from it, from your perspective? 
Um, well, I mean, I think of, I think because I'm now in the education system on the other side of the table, instructing uh, university students um, at the graduate level, I also know that, you know, you can think of the the different tiers. So if you think about an undergraduate degree and a master's degree and then a PhD, the skills that you are gaining and the developmental um, objectives of designing courses and, and learning in that particular sort of tiered structure. Um, I think so the university or sort of the undergraduate experience really is that found you're, you're still actually learning how to learn in an undergrad because, you know, we, there's, there's such variation, I think, in the high school experience that you're still forming really key things, skills, how to form an argument, how to translate what you read into a coherent, you know, narrative for an essay, say. Um, you're still learning how to do basic research. You know, how do you search for an academic article? What is a database? How to use the library? That's all really still foundational, right? The master's level is when you're starting to get into actual research, um, starting to hone those skills around how do you design a piece of research? That's that's a really particular skill. And then the PhD is doing all of that, right? So it's the cumulative effects of um, those different degrees leading up to that. Right. So for me, that's how I think about my undergrad is that at the time, you know, um, I had incredible instructors. Um, I also had an incredible cohort where, you know, a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Carmen Cray, she was in the program one year ahead of me um, at UBC. And we both now have become, you know, professors at SFU. And, um, but I remember being involved in a project of hers after she had graduated that had impacts um, at the university and still does because I I did an interview um, for a project called What I Learned in Class Today, and um, it was a it was a real story of racism in the classroom, and it was it was a an emergent project where she was hearing that you know other students were experiencing racism in the classroom. And then I had an experience of, of a racist moment in a classroom. So they developed this project to have us tell our stories and record that. It then became a video. Um, and it ended up having quite widespread impacts because this video became mandatory for all faculties, all instructors to watch. And then instructors were also showing it to like their first year law um, courses and um, and it became, uh, one of those things where I, I think I was one of the opening interviews. So afterwards students would be like on, you know, the bus and they'd be staring at me 
And then they'd be like, you were on the video of what I learned in class today. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was. But afterwards, I got a lot of response because people were saying, wow, that was very brave of you to say what you needed to say. And I remember thinking it felt like a very mis, um, misplaced way of connecting with me on the moment that I had shared in the video because I didn't speak it out of a place of bravery. I spoke into that space because I was having a private conversation with a friend of mine, which made it a safe place for me to actually divulge what what that racist experience and very traumatic experience was. So it seemed strange that everybody thought I was brave because I was thinking, well, I didn't do it to be brave. I did it because it was safe, because it was something um, I trusted her and I trusted that what she was going to do with that video and that narrative was going to be good work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, it was kind of like there was what was happening in the classroom. There was my personal development. And then there was this kind of thing where, you know, it kind of, there was a certain notoriety that I ended up having on campus where, you know, deans would recognize me too. And I, I'd be like, you know, it was, it was a, an incredible transformative time on campus um, and quite uncomfortable because I was not in a position of power um, and yet it was disturbing a lot of those power structures at the university. Wow. Can you tell us about what that experience was? You don't have to, but what was that video about what, ha what had happened? Oh, um, yeah, it was, it was a moment when, uh, and it was an English class and there was a couple. So I don't know if you've, um, spoken with Otis Jasper. He was also in my cohort at the time. I do know who he is. I have not had a chance to interview him, no. Yeah, so he was also in that video, and he he talked about this English class where it was kind of strange because it was right at the beginning. This would have been around 2004, 2005, maybe 2005, where there were instructors who were bringing Indigenous content mostly in courses like English um, or history or something like that, into the classroom. I remember that one of the readings was called Stolen from Our Embrace. And I don't, I think we were given the choice to read that book um, because it's, it's very, very heavy. And I chose not to read that one. I chose to read a different one. Um, but the way that the, we had classroom discussions was to sit in a circle and we were discussing a poem at the, on that particular day. And it was kind of decontextualized history. So kind of the, the rough edge of what happened, you know, in residential schools, um, folks talking about intergenerational trauma in these readings. Um, and then we would sit in a circle and, and try and get some, some discussion out of it. Um, but there was a student, um, I believe she was an international student, and she put up her hand and she said, um, 
why are Native people so messed up? And in that moment, it was like, it was like, I might as well have, like, I just disappeared into the wall. It was that kind of trauma that, um, you know, your throat closes up and you can't speak and you just um, kind of go blurry and, and just you check out because you're sitting there thinking, um, what, <laughs> how could you say that we're this, you know, we're speaking about such sensitive topics in the readings themselves. And these authors are doing incredible work sharing what that's all about. And that student processed that as just this really insensitive um, question about like, uh, again, why is it our fault as indigenous peoples that trauma has happened to us? You know, it was, it just didn't make any sense. It was, a misreading, um, it sounds like. A misreading, but it was also very violent. That's how I framed it in in the video when I retold that story, is how violent her words were um, to just, uh, because one of the points I make in the video is that she assumed that there was no Indigenous students in the classroom, I think. I, I mean, visibly there wasn't. I, I I don't know if she can tell that I am, but it was kind of like she asked the question because she felt she was safe to to say it and to be anonymous, and you know she just served and was thoughtless and careless about how those words would land. Yeah, which is like which is better that she would have not said that because she knew you were, and then she would have the people are thinking horrible things in their head and just living their life like that mm. or saying it and getting uh, hopefully called out for that. It's not it's one of my frustrations uh, and I just worked with the native court workers on this. We updated our website and we've got statistics on like our incarceration rates and we've got statistics on our education rates and it's like what a terrible picture to paint people is like, uh, the worst statistics you can find on us with mm. no balancing because like my argument has been like watch us turn this around you've disadvantaged us we faced insurmountable adversity you've, we faced racism we faced abusive governmental policies watch us come back what like this is not the end of our story and it's what i get hesitant about when we talk about Indian residential schools, colonization Indian residential schools in the 60s scoop, and then that's that's it. Well, first of all, there's a whole history prior to colonization that's super interesting. Um, the Coast Salish History Project's doing a great work on trying to write stories about like the wars that have taken place, the culture that w existed prior. Um, but then now, there are people who are doing amazing work that are setting great examples and, and doing things like, um, I don't know if you've heard of Raven Reed's um, subscription box, but they're doing, they're doing such cool work of like giving you a subscription box of indigenous artists, indigenous books, indigenous um, styles of like um, pieces that you can have in this box. And it's so uplifting. I have uh, Carrie Lynn Victor's and Nicola Campbell's book, Stand Like a Cedar, mm -hmm. um, Shayla Rain's book, um, How Creator Sees You. Uh, like these are such positive 
they give you hope. They give you a sense of where we could head. Um, I interviewed Sonny McKelsey. He's talking about uh, the Stolo history and and what our communities were and why place names matter. Um, because that's one question I've been asked privately um, by various everyday Canadians, which is, why do you guys have these words that I can't pronounce on signs? And it's like, well, here's the definition of the word and you decide for yourself whether that contributes to your understanding because Sonny McKelsey did a great job of explaining uh, it's called La Chiam and it stands for where wild strawberries grow. Uh, there is still a strawberry patch at the top of Mount Chiam. And so that's beautiful. And we should preserve that wild strawberry patch for as long as we can. Like, we should be grateful that that exists. Carrie Lynn Victor helped name Laquam Park. Uh, why did it, Why is it called that? It's called that because it's where the mossy place is. And she explains that when you have that understanding, you're more likely to protect it. Uh, when you understand what it was, because, and she does a great job of saying, first it starts out as like a small trailhead that's kind of paved by feet. Uh, then people come in and they decide to gravel it and try and make it more clear. Then they put in a play park. Then they put in parking lot. Then they start putting in houses. Then they start building high rises. And then it's no longer the mossy place. It's something completely different. But if you know what it was, you're more likely to protect it. And I think that those conversations help balance out our understanding. But it really frustrates me when people just want to talk about the terrible things that happen because it's almost as if that's all we are. And I don't think that that's all we are. I think we're we're far more interesting than just that. Um, and so I'm interested to know where where you went from there. Did that light a fire under you? How did you, uh, like that video, it sounds like it was sort of misunderstood um, by others. But wh- where did that sort of, uh, where did you go from there? Hmm. Well, I, <clears throat> I don't think I don't think the video was misunderstood, because um, because it if you watch it, it kind of the message is quite clear. Right. <laughs> it it lands like a ton of bricks, basically, right. with a series. I think the impact of it was the series of speakers, um, that it's not just one student, and that was I think the transformation transformative impact for us as um, participants in that project is that, um, you know, what I thought was just a horrible moment in my university experience was, is, and is a more common experience across a lot of universities for Indigenous students in general. And so by being able to capture that collective voice, um, we were able to not only, like, it's healing for us, right, to see that and go, Oh, you you saw that, you experienced that, you felt that too. So then, immediately, then it it became a systemic change right. um, uh, piece, a piece that caused systemic change, actually, which was good. So, um, yeah, in the background, I mean, I knew that my journey with learning wasn't finished, um, and. I had a mentor. I worked at the UBC Longhouse. Um, at the time, uh, the director was um, Dr. Rosalind Hanna. Um, she now has a different last name. But, you know, I remember a moment with her where she said to me, you can get a doctor degree too. You know, you, you'll get a master's degree if that's what you want. And you'll get a doctor's degree. And she was like... Um, 
sharing me with me her experience of doing graduate school. She studied in Florida, I believe, and Arizona. Um, and and I again like I was doing my undergrad when I was working with her, and so I hadn't really contemplated that, but it lodged a little seed in my mind that that's what can happen next. And when I graduated, um, again, I took a year off and I was working at UBC. And during that time, I really was sitting with the question of whether or not I wanted to do grad school. Um, and, and then ended up thinking, yeah, okay, I do. But I was feeling the itch to travel again and um, had read uh, Decolonizing Methodologies by Linda Smith. Um, and the at the time, it was the FNSP program, First Nation Studies. Um, there was a strong emphasis on research. And um, we learned a lot about research ethics. We had to um, go through the UBC re- research ethics process. Uh, we did little mini projects. And that started my passion for research where um, I started to think to myself, what is it that, what would be a question that I would want to explore in grad school? Um, And that's when I got to this question of leadership. So um, I started to, I I had good mentors who were advising me, you know, when you get ready for grad school, you want to have your clear research proposal. Um, You want to be familiar with some literature, even if it's not what you end up using in your project, you need to demonstrate that you have an interest and you have uh, that background. And so I started to put all those pieces together, you know, for a grad school application um, and thought to myself, okay, I didn't want to stay at UBC because it took me a long time to do my undergrad. Um, So I thought, where can I travel? I didn't want to go to to the U.S. Um, Is there any reason for that? I actually didn't want to do the GRE (laughs) or the GMAT or whatever, the the standardized tests. Um, Yeah, I didn't have the money at the time and... um, and it just, I, I just didn't have anywhere in the States that I really wanted to go. Right. Um, yeah, so it was kind of thinking I could go to Australia, I could go to New Zealand. Um, those seemed like my options. And didn't didn't bother with Australian schools, but, um, yeah, just applied to. There's a program at the University of Otago um, called the Master of Indigenous Studies, Um I think I applied to four programs in uh, New Zealand. They were all Maori or Indigenous Studies uh, programs. I didn't. I think. Uh, I think I got into two, and so once I had two acceptances, um, that was when I was. It suddenly became like, oh, okay, this is a reality now, and this, I have to make a decision. And so I thought. I can't do that from Canada. I have no idea what what uh, what it's like, and so I also knew that it's it's extremely important to be deliberate and conscious about the decision you make for grad programs because it's a it's a really serious commitment having a supervisor, um, 
there you, I know there's some horror stories. You can have really bad supervisors and it's a hard relationship to get out of. Um, I, and I knew that, you know, I wanted to have a program that I felt really connected to. Right. So I thought I can only do that if I go there. Um, so I went in and spent a year uh, before grad school just visiting universities and, um, again, working in hospitality um, and just traveling and having fun during that year. Right. And you you went down the path of economics. What weighed into that decision? Um, yeah. So I met in that first year. Um, uh, this this story is what I'm, I'm losing the word for it. There was a lot of um, maybe serendipity. There was a lot of um, just having conversations with as many people as I possibly could. So I was staying with a friend of Dr. Hannah's from the, from the UBC Longhouse. She studied with a woman who lived in Auckland. She connected me with her, and I stayed with her and her husband when I arrived, which was, again, amazing to just have somebody on the ground. You didn't feel like you had to be, you know, in a hostel or a hotel or whatever. Um where they lived, uh, it was a complete coincidence. Their neighbor happened to be the head of department at the uh, School of Management at the business school. So she, uh, so the woman I was staying with, her name was Catherine, and she said um, she was in sports science or you know, she was doing her doctorate and she said, sorry, I can't really help you. I don't know your topic area. I'm not really familiar with indigenous topics. Um, but our neighbor is works in social sciences. And so she said, why don't you go have a conversation with her? I'm sure, you know, it'd be great. She'll, she's very friendly. Um, at least she'll be more useful than I am. And so I did. I just sort of went over, knocked on the door, brought my little folder, which had my research proposal. I had my transcripts with me. Um, I was prepared for anything if I had that folder because I was just like, yep, if this is what you want to see, here's everything that I would need um, to get into grad school. Right. Uh, carried that with me everywhere. I had all my reference letters. Um, wow. And so she went through it with me and she said, like I had written this proposal about indigenous leadership. Um, and she said, you know, I, I know a lot of people who would be interested in this. Um, why don't I set you up with, with a bunch of professors basically to just have a meeting. And she, she kind of was like, well, you, you're very lucky because I happen to be the head of department. So if I recommend that they talk to you, they have to talk to you because I'm their boss. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, didn't intend for that to be how I went in, but, you know, and that's how I got connected to, um, I met with, uh, Dr. Carla Hokamo, um, Dr. Manuka Hinare, uh, Professor Brad Jackson, um, and there was there were several professors, but those were the Maori. Uh, Brad's not Maori, but you know had worked with um, uh, on Maori research before, and yeah. So I had met with um, several of them, and they were great. They just 
opened my eyes to this this business school. But also at the time, I didn't really realize, like, why am I meeting with business school professors? This didn't make any sense to me because I was like, I want to study leadership. And then it was Brad who said to me, well, leadership is a topic within business schools. You can study leadership. There's a whole field. There's journals. You know, this is this is where you, you want to be if if you do want to study and get into the theory of leadership. So, um, yeah, so I, I met with Brad. He was the most generous with his time. Um, he sat with me for three hours, showed me around. It's a beautiful, I don't know if you ever get a chance to go down to Auckland, but the business school is a beautiful glass building. It was brand new, like atrium style. It's a, It was just gorgeous. And so, um, yeah, he sat with me. One of the things he, he looked at my transcripts and he said to me, wow, I can see you didn't like science. <laughs> and then he said, but I can also see, so it affects your GPA, right, to have fail, failed courses. So he said, your GPA is not super high, but I can see when you love something, you're getting A pluses, you know. So he said, talk me through that. You know, what what is it about these particular courses so he was very interested in actually understanding um, my identity as a student. And I think I always hold that really close because I think now in the position that I'm in, he didn't have to take that approach, right? He was a busy person, um, but he saw something and he nurtured and really created space for me. Um, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful to him for for taking me seriously um so yeah and that's when like we started talking through my to my topic and um and to be honest that day is when he said uh i will admit you on dean's discretion which i can do today you know you don't even have to go through the application process wow. he said if you want to be in our program i can let you in i can send you an offer letter um if, if that's what you want. And I was like, I thought I was, I thought I was going to Maori studies programs because I didn't get into the University of Auckland. So these were, this was the school that I had not gone into. Wow. Um, yeah. So I was not under any expectations that this was going to be my pathway. Um, but I, you know, immediately got on the phone with my dad, just said like, this, this just happened. I was just accepted into the business school. I like, I don't know what I should do, um, but we talked through that, and he was really encouraging, and and I ended up saying, you know, I just need a bit of time to think this through. Um, it's a big surprise for me at the moment, and um, and I'm not planning. I wasn't planning to start right away because um, this was very early in my trip. Right. And he said, "Oh, it's no problem. You can defer defer that for a year or so. You still have the offer and." Um, yeah, so that's what I ended up doing was uh, I did explore some other universities, um, continued to, you know, I went to the University of Waikato, had a few conversations there. I had a conversation with um, uh, Awanuiarangi, which is a tribal university um, just off the sort of the east coast of New Zealand. Um Graham Smith is a very um, prominent Maori professor. He's married to Linda Smith. So, you know, in the Maori 
scholarly world. Um, these were both rock stars, and um, and yeah, he was he was um, just getting me interested in the in the tribal university, um, and then I ended up having conversations with uh, Victoria University of Wellington um, as well. Yeah, and and just yeah, sat with all of those experiences, and in the end. Did you feel under, like, that's something I think we do struggle with, is that we focus so much on grades that we don't focus on the person's, perhaps, passion. Like, we have um, attempts at understanding people of, like, cover letters. But then you're supposed to, like, with the Allard cover letter that they, like, recommend to you in their binder, it's, like, the first paragraph and a half is, like, already pre-filled in with like I hear I am a Peter A Allard School of Law student at the University of British Columbia like you get so little of your own passion and who you are that part of the benefit is that you got to meet with a real human being you weren't just submitting an online application that sends off through the internet and is read by somebody who could have had a bad day and then they're clicking yes or no or whatever their process is that it's so disconnected and it's tough to see because my partner is considering what she wants to do and she's like well i'm not my goal isn't to get an A plus in everything. My goal is to educate myself the best I can while still being a good partner, while still exercising, while still having good community relationships. Like I want to be a healthy human being. And it's so it, like it breaks my heart to think that that her being a human, that her living a healthy life where school is not everything, that school is not her whole world, is a detriment to her because that's who you want doing the work is real people that are going to have balanced approaches because the people who go 100% perhaps at law school are not the people you really want helping you when you're struggling because their goal is to just do whatever they're doing at 100% pace and not consider how to have a good conversation, how to walk you through what's going on. That's the the culture within law is like billable hours. How many hours are you billing? How are you maximizing those? And so that's not usually spent having a good conversation with your client and making sure that they feel comfortable, understood, confident in the direction that they're like, that's not the the currency. But my goodness, how much of a better legal system would we have if there was more understanding and more? And so I get I'm just interested in your your experience sounds so positive in that somebody was able to look at you as a person and go, this is who you are. And it must have been, um, I know when I've gotten grades that I wasn't happy with, there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of, if I could just wipe that out, if I could just erase that from from people knowing about it, like I would feel more confident or better about myself. So it sounds like that person was able to validate you in a way that uh, for so few get that experience. And I'm just interested in what that meant for you. Oh, it meant everything because, I mean, I think about um, all the moments that led up to that conversation, right? The intentionality. If I hadn't decided to go to New Zealand, I never would have had that conversation with him, right? I could have just accepted to any program from Canada, rocked up, show up, and then you sort of roll the dice whether or not you are happy to be there, Um yeah, so I think that there was just so much leading up to that. But yeah, I i mean, the reason I tell this story is because I know 
that Brad Jackson's approach, and he's a professor of leadership, right? So I think that that has a distinct impact on the approach that he took. He studies critical leadership, and um, and he he demonstrated a nuance in his approach to the conversation, uh, which was very human centric. And you're right. I, I think it's actually unfortunately rare that that happened at all, right? It seems like almost, uh, you know, unthinkable that that it, that conversation was even possible. Yeah. I think of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Jocko Willink, but he's a, he's a Navy SEAL and he writes children's books on leadership and uh, I think some adult books, but he does children's books. And uh, super macho guy, um, very strong, very hardworking, posts on Instagram every morning, um, a photo of his clock at 4.30 a.m. every day just to tell you that he's, he, he's got this mindset of earning the sunrise. He's a very hardworking individual, but his kind of message on leadership is that it is something that when people think about it and you give someone a role as like manager, you give them a role as supervisor, instantly they want to demonstrate dominance over everybody else and say like, well, I'm in charge now. You got to listen to me. And there's that feeling of like, that's what a leader is supposed to be. But from my understanding, it's supposed to be the opposite where you're supposed to say, okay, team, what do you need from me to go succeed at the mission? This is what the, what we're doing. How do we work together to make sure we set that and meet our goals and, and succeed together and collaborate? And how how do I get the best out of you? What, what do you need from me in order to do the best work possible? So what made you interested in leadership? What pulled at you to say that that was sort of an area of interest? Um, well, it was a bit of a combination. So as I was thinking about sort of theories of leadership, um, and just looking for academic articles when I was still at UBC and just kind of get dipping my toes in, um, I, everything that I read wasn't connecting with what I intuitively felt and understood um, in particular, I've, I've talked about my father and watching him through my whole life and thinking to myself, where is that in the literature? You know, where's the story that I know um, of the knowledge that he's passed down, the stories that he shared with me, mostly about my great-grandmother. Um, Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us about what your dad taught you and, and what you saw in him that was missing? Um, well, I mean, he would tell us about looking after her. So in his young adult life, he lived with her and he would um, he would drive her to bingo and he would take her to the longhouse. She was a spirit dancer. Um, she, and I think about the time that she was a spirit dancer, you know, she was born in 1904. Um, and when she was 16, she became a dancer. She had, um, a lot of songs. And so she was known within the longhouse circuit for her songs and her dances. Um, she also 
found her songs in a in an old way. You know, she went in, up into the mountains and um, had those experiences where the, the songs came to her. Um, and so he shared that he shares that you know he talks about that time of knowing like being almost in sync with her um through her rhythms of life you know when um and obviously it's sort of in the rhythms of the winter dancing season um the spring and you know the summer times where he um drove her around and and you know she was he would drive her to be with the elders program at, at Kokolitsa and um yeah so and i know that that time is really sacred in his life cuz he talks about it as that's when he got his teachings you know like that was she's his point of reference for everything that he learned um protocol everything that he does that is based in the teachings now it all came from that time w- growing up with with her and spending spending that time so um yeah so i think about that's what i thought about when i thought about leadership is that if i if i place myself in in the scheme of the family and think about leadership as not um not a figurehead but part leadership i think of it always as kinship as genealogy that genealogy is a structure for knowledge about leadership that comes through families so the knowledge that then in our little mini kinship structure you know she passed on knowledge to him he's passed on knowledge to me um you know she inherited that from her ancestors and we all kind of branch out you know my siblings have heard different stories and little pieces about what that means a lot of it is driven from the idea of principles and ethics and how to be a good person you know like and that being a leader is hard it's hard work and that's something that um dad always taught me is that you know um the hard work is the decisions you have to make that they're not always good decisions they don't make everybody happy all the time um that but that's not your job as a leader is to make everybody happy nobody's going to be happy if you're thinking about a community um you're not going to get every single person on the same page but the hard job of the leader is to be able to sit and listen and watch and be able to understand a general feeling um to move forward with with something and so um and also you know the the time that he was with her was in the 60s and 70s and so um that period of time was there was a the way that the word that he uses is conservative so the values we're not talking about politics we're talking about the conservative teachings that she passed on to him was that there's ways of doing things that are strict right she was she was very strict um 
as were, I think, a lot of our grandmas at that time. And um, yeah, and so so that's what he learned was sort of the strictness of those principles and protocols. Interesting. There's a relationship, it sounds like, between how you look at leadership and our idea of seven generations. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that, because it sounds like it is passed on. And through interviewing Eddie Gardner and Sonny McKelsey, um, Andrew Victor, they've talked about this idea of seven generations. It's something I've talked about as something I feel like is missing um, from so many, like when we talk about decolonization, I like to try and give examples of what Canadian culture can learn from Indigenous culture, where if they were to adopt it tomorrow, I feel like the world would be a better place. One of them is our respect for elders, um, that's when you saw how seniors were treated in the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, particularly on in, in Ontario. It was not good. Um, when I look at my peers, how they approach seniors, they, they take a photo with them as if they're just mm. cute old people. Um, this is the wrong analysis. Um, even if your family members aren't indigenous, they likely survived things like Indian or um, like World War II, the Cold War, um, World War One, the Great Depression. There's a lot of lived experiences. Like I know my non-biological grandmother, she wouldn't waste a thing. And that came from a traumatic experience of knowing what it was like to have nothing. And there's knowledge that she can share with us now. Uh, she's not here anymore. But uh, when we're facing inflation right now, we're starting to realize what it's like to have less and less and less. And we know that inflation detrimentally impacts people on fixed incomes the worst. And so there is going to be a tightening of purse strings, a feeling of... I can't afford that now more than we've experienced likely since the original Great Depression. You could probably compare it to the more recent 2008 Depression, but it seems like it's going to be worse. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts on the idea of seven generations and the leadership values that it sounds like have been passed on to you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, th- I, so I also have the experience. So when I was actually doing research for the master's degree, um, I was researching leadership in a New Zealand context. So I was exploring and interviewing Maori leaders. Um, and it's also very common, you know, the as soon as you put a label of leader onto anybody, um, it is it is, you know, almost like a reflex to deflect that and to say, no, like not me. I couldn't be a leader because I think that's that's part of the way that we are sort of taught in pop culture, um, especially through things like um, fairy tales, right? Like Walt Disney movies, we see leadership in a particular lens, particular way. Often it's very gendered. Probably they're trying super hard to, to shift some of that now. But, um, you know, we learn really young that to be a leader is exceptional. It means you have to have a certain characteristic. You know, you've got to have a certain courage. You've got to have um, often, you know, you've got to rise up from adversity in order to be a leader. But all of those things can end up being traps where we then feel that, well, the rest of us cannot be leaders then. You know, there's only a few leaders in the world really who can actually fulfill those roles. Um, and it works for society to to promote that type of leadership because, you know, it's not a very 
um, fashionable thing to imagine that every single person could be a leader. Um, on the on the contrary, you know what I heard from a Maori perspective, and it aligns with um, what I was talking about intuitively understanding how leadership is passed down. A, it's it's not so much about who you are or the figureheads, right? It's about um, your contribution to the world. And it is aligned with the idea of um, gifts, that everybody has a gift to offer into society. So leadership then is is something that it has many different forms. It's, a, it's more of a spectrum if we think about um, not leaders, but leadership as being something we all contribute and participate in. Um, and so then if you think, uh, like maybe another way to think about it, I really think about it like a, I don't know, river, right? It's like different pieces of the river that lead to the big river. Um, like streams all leading. Streams, right. yeah. Like, um, or I think also about like blood streams where, you know, you've got a whole interconnected system and we're all part of it. So I, I always, I think of leadership that way. I think of our economies that way. Um, all of these kinds of ideas are not exclusive. That's that. There's a piece of that with regards to economies that I have real trouble with is the idea of it being elite, right? That economics is is a science for the elite. Uh, I we all participate in it. Like, how could it be a science for the elite? Yes, there's scientific modeling, and yes, that's a very nuanced, um, you know, science. But the idea of that being exclusive exclusively for people who are only trained in econometrics or something like that, that uh, that's really problematic for me because that means that that's how you control power and that's how you centralize decision-making um, based on, uh, on those who have access to that education, those who are gifted as mathematicians, you know. Um, I like that a lot because I, I often talk about how um, we think of voting and we think of this individual uh, aspect of ourselves that we are considered the cornerstone of the state, uh, that we're supposed to vote in our leaders, that that's what a democracy is. And people always divert to, well, I didn't vote in the last election, the last provincial or the last federal or the last municipal. But you vote every day. You vote every day by choosing to shop on Amazon or your small business. You vote uh, when you choose to buy this product or that product, support that idea or this idea. And I hope that that emboldens people to vote more their conscience. Like I love Tentree and the reason I like it is because they, they spend money on planting trees again and they try and make higher quality products and they try and promote this idea of being sustainable and being in line with the environment. And I think of that as like, do I buy this shirt or that shirt? Well, this shirt makes me feel like I'm in line with my own values and whether or not they do a perfect job, just like charities, how much actually goes to their cause, I don't know. But my goal is to be in line with those values as best as I can. And I do my best to vote with my money by saying, oh, this person is really interested in this. Maybe I can give them a leg up by getting them this product that they're going to really like or that's going to help them succeed in what they're doing. And 
I think that when we remember that we have an impact, like you were saying, that we aren't disconnected from the economy. We are the economy. We are the consumers that drive the big machines where these models are based on. They're based on our viewpoints. And I think that that's, that's so easily forgotten. So I really appreciate you saying that. Mm-hmm. And also it sort of is a convenient way to feel that um, – that you then don't have to participate. But like you say, we do, we always participate. Um, and I, th- I think that the more that we own that narrative that um, I'd like to replace this language, but you know, we are economic actors. If we become and own our identities as I always like to think that somewhere along the lines we could we could replace that idea of an economic actor with um, halkamelem words <laughs> that are more reflective of indigenous worldviews around the idea of being part of the world. Right? We're just we contribute, we participate, we mutually gain and. Um, and give, you know, there's a reciprocity there. There's all these kind of mechanisms that are um, within our feasting and ceremonial practices. That's what I studied for the doctorate is to look at um, what is, I mean, my question was, what is the nature of the Coast Salish economy that allowed me to look at feasts and ceremonies to understand from a from an ethical and principled level what are the parts of it, right? That um, that are economic um, transactional behaviors, but that are indigenous centric. Can you tell us about that? Because I've uh, learned about um, that indigenous people had economies and trade prior to colonization, which uh, fascinates me. That most people don't think. Um, and so I'm interested to know, what did your research find? And can you give us insights on things like the potlatch? What did those mean and how did they function? And is there a place for them perhaps in our modern society? Because that seems to be the piece that um, Western culture is missing. There is an element of philanthropy, um, but if you watch a lot of documentaries like I do, the philanthropy is often self-serving in that it's actually accomplishing uh, the – it was Hassan Minhaj who does a show called The Patriot Act who broke down what Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, these people donated to. And like it looked like they were being philanthropists. They were demonstrating philanthropy, but they were not. If you look at where their money was going, they were pushing bills that they wanted to go through in certain jurisdictions. They were trying to create tax loopholes. They were doing – they were putting it into a nonprofit so the nonprofit could argue for their behalf. And so I'm interested to understand what your research found in regards to um, how how we – what we can learn from these uh, traditions. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting you bring up philanthropy because uh, there's – there's a talk that um, – so my one of my mentors in New Zealand I mentioned was um, Associate Professor Manuka Hinare. Um, he, he recently passed, but one of the, the – um, he would often get, you know, asked, can you do a talk on, you know, Maori perspective of and then, you know, any number of topics. One of them was philanthropy, and he connected that immediately to the gifting – um, principles, Maori gifting principles. And he said, Maoris are the original philanthropists. You know, if you think about Maori society as being 
you know, 4,000 years, 5,000 years old, and part of a larger network of Polynesian gifting in the Pacific, Asia-Pacific region, which includes Indonesia and um, Taiwan even, uh, that that entire region was linguistically connected, therefore philosophically connected, um, and therefore the the principles of Maori gifting um, were the the sort of norms around economic transactions. So, yeah, so he made that connection that, you know, philanthropists and the principles of philanthropy um, are not new to Maori people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, and then, you know, now we've got, um, I don't know if you've read Decolonizing Wealth. Um, It's a, it's a book. He's, so Edgar Villanueva, um, he's American, um, Native American, and he's written this entire book is about his experience professionally of being uh, working in the um, sector, philanthropy sector. And he talks about, um, you know, how we need to reframe and rethink money. Um, one of the questions he asks is, is can money heal? And he says, you know, money has been so detrimental to our societies. Um, But I write about in my thesis that, um, you know, there's, there's problems with the foundations of competition that in which our sort of capitalist, um, norms have emerged from and you know that's coming from very distinctly anglo-western philosophies and and for sure you know we we point to adam smith but it's not always what adam smith necessarily wrote it's the way that our modern society understands what Adam Smith wrote today. So we have to be careful about... Sorry, who is Adam Smith? Oh, he's the father of economics, okay. of modern ep- economics. And he um, was, you know, um, I believe that he was Scottish. But so he's he's seen as the father, but he, and he wrote The Wealth of Nations. There's a book before that, which you know, has been of a lot more interest recently um, because the wealth of nations is seen as sort of the, you know, f- the text, the foundational text. And it was, um, uh, but there was a book that he wrote before the wealth of nations um, called the theory of moral sentiments. And it's, uh, there's a lot of economists who have read both of those and said, you know, you can't separate those two books. They are both connected in terms of their arguments and volumes. And often people just sort of ignored the theory of moral sentiments, but it's the entire principle and philosophy that precedes the wealth of nations. And so if you take one and not the other, you're you're missing a huge piece of the story there because what he's setting out in the theory of moral sentiments is a whole lot of principles and ethics about what it how you um, enact 
uh, economic as economic actors. Um, how different, just a philosophical question, how different do you think the world would have been if he just made it one volume and had the two pieces so they couldn't have not bought one book and, and had the other? Off, I don't know. Well, I mean, like, do you mean if he hadn't written The Wealth of Nations? No, like if he had, because it sounds like he wrote two books. What if they were just one and oh, people I had see. to read the whole thing in order to understand things? Because it seems right. like a, a mistake in our capitalist world to give two options and then make people buy both. Is should have put them both in one book. Or an oversight of just yeah. like historical inaccuracy, you know, like to... It's sort of irresponsible of, of scholars and academics to ignore a very important, crucial right. piece of somebody's work. You know, our job as scholars is to understand the the long story there, not to just say one piece is, is the piece that should inform our world. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of um, debates or there had there had been, I don't know how much there is now, um, around this idea of ethical economics, right? And that there's um, there's been great shifts, you know, um, within the London School of Economics around these kinds of debates and conversations. There's been, you know, numerous Nobel Prizes um, of folks trying to trying to sh- change and and reshape the way we think about economics so that it's not just this kind of um, uh, American cookie cutter, very, you know, when we say capitalist, we have a certain idea of somebody on Wall Street and somebody who's only profit-oriented and somebody who um, is sort of that cutthroat, all costs, you know, you know, just, just the business wins, the corporation wins every time. Um, I, I do what I see in my work within conferences and going to, um, traveling around the world and having these conversations is that the world is interested in, in teaching differently at business schools. Um, some business schools. Interesting. <laughs> not, not all. I'm interested because I had uh, Camden Hutchison on, and he's interested in business organizations. Uh, he he laid out kind of the history of capitalism, and one of his hesitations with trying to have a more holistic corporation or having people with more balance is that you get corporations who start taking on those marketing perspectives and they start selling you on, like my big concern is that um, climate change is real. We have these real issues going on, but now we have this currency of putting a little leaf on something and saying that it's economic or it's environmentally friendly. And then you read in the fine print that it says like, this was only like up to 5% of this was actually used in a sustainable way. And then you're like, well, that's not, that's not that good. Like, why can't it be 50% or a hundred percent or like we should have higher bars to get that leaf. And so his hesitation is that these just become marketing organizations and that they start telling you all the things you want to hear as a consumer um, and whether or not they're actually making a positive difference or not is sort of besides the point of convincing you that makes you feel good as a consumer. What are your what are your thoughts on on that kind of perspective that it's just going to be abused if the corporations start selling you on how how good they are or how they're trying to be more ethical and, and responsible? Mm. Or the idea that business schools just take on um, 
kind of niche topics because it's it's a it's a new and interesting area for research but what is the actual impact we really make oh interesting um because you can i mean to me that's greenwashing right what you've just described is you know you just you take something that originally was intended to have meaning and then it becomes so watered down that you know it's like same with organics and same with like any kind of standard um setting or being able to regulate something that it it loses its its value if we don't do our due diligence around that regulation regulation um but yeah and i think like that's a big concern within sustainability topics right is um is all the different ways i mean there's a lot of confusion even within um you know sustainable business are we talking about sustainable profits because a lot of business people are talking about sustainability in their profits. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of folks are are talking about sustainability in terms of really shifting business practices, the way that we do business, why we do business, um, that all of that is, is a totally other area. But sometimes we, when those lines get blurred, it can easily slip into, you know, different, different, Totally different conversations. Absolutely. So what was your research like when you were out um, in New Zealand? What were you focused on and what were you kind of gaining from that? And was that helping inform your perspectives here in BC? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I worked a lot with um, Manuka Henare, was my supervisor for my master's degree, um, my supervisor for my PhD was associate uh, was Professor Christine Woods, and um, uh, so when I shifted from thinking about leadership to economics, um, I really was thinking a lot about some of the things that I could see were overlooked, basically, and from a literature standpoint. So. Um, it troubled me that in BC, when I, when I was trying to do my background research, I was only finding literature up to 1990, 1990. And I was searching and in the back of my mind going, why? You know, is, and it wasn't Indigenous researchers. It was non-Indigenous researchers who just happened to kind of pick up this topic um, and I was like, ah, of course, because the BC treaty process was 1990. And when that process starts kicking in in BC, you suddenly have a shift in power around resources and decision-making. If suddenly nations are in the so-called driver's seat, um, as, you know, having, uh, having lands recognized, having um, resources actually recognized to be within their power, then suddenly the corporate sector is taking a great interest in Indigenous um, people and having to make friends, sidle up, whereas before, if that was never recognized, then, you know, there's no economic, there's no Indigenous economy prior to that apparently this is how it looks in the literature because there's no power recognition of 
indigenous resources. Interesting. So I was looking at that and saying, well, that's a, there's a really massive problem with that. Number one is that it overlooks indigenous economies from a historical standpoint, you know, makes it look like 1990 is it, you know, is that seriously our timeline? And number two, um, it also overlooks the ongoing nature of what I also knew was within our ceremonies and feasting is that, you know, in my lifetime coming back home in my teens and my early 20s and being with, with dad and the rest of my family and witnessing and going to potlatches, I also had that in my mind going, well, yes, I know that there was a potlatch ban. There was a period of time when no potlatches were happening. Can you tell us what a potlatch is from your perspective? For, and then we can continue. I, ju oh. I just think it's important for other people who may not know. Sure. Um, that's a big question. Uh, okay, so so the word that is most often used instead of potlatch, certainly in among the people that I interviewed from um, Coast Salish communities, is not potlatch, but gatherings. So folks were referring to, um, you know, going to gatherings, and there was any sort of range of what those constituted. Um, but the the idea of potlatches is connected to work. So the idea of um, that communities and families have spiritual work to do, and it's connected to to um, passing on resources, passing on um, property rights, passing on family names, um, and basically in order to do that, because we had oral historical cultures, no written languages, that for thousands of years, uh, our oral structures have been conducted within these gathering ceremonies. Um, so that if you have, say, for an example, you want to pass on a fishing site from one family member to the next, you must have that conducted in the presence of other people so that it's it's recorded in their hearts and their minds. And in order to also conduct that work that, you know, there's all these pieces of the ceremony that give it legitimization. Um, one of those would be, you know, you've got to have witnesses. You've got to have gifting in order to mnemonically capture the transaction. So if, if I gift to you um, a paddle to symbolize that I pass down a piece of property from my uncle to my nephew, you know, then you've, you've got a symbol representing that moment in time. And it also ensures that if that transaction is contested in the future, you've got a set of people to look to in order to help you resolve that conflict right. um, in the future. You bring your witnesses together um, and that's where it becomes an intergenerational connected system um, of transactions basically over time. So, 
and then and then you've got a feasting component. Now, I've taken a lot of interest in in the idea of feasting. Why would you embed your transactions within a feast? You know, why would you have those two pieces come together? Or why would that be important to have those two pieces come together? And you kind of see it today. Feasting is a, a big part of indigenous, and I don't know if they all know exactly why. It just, just it, right now, it just is. Yes. So please continue. I just think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not the nature of the transaction that is only important. It's the quality of the relationship that is alongside the transaction that is important which is why the feasting and the ceremonial component is important because what you're recognizing is that there's uh, there's a good relationship here that families and communities are wanting to show the world that we have these good relationships. Um, and the way that you it's the way that you demonstrate that is to invite lots of other communities as well to say, not only are we good partners in this relationship, but they are too. Both of us are honorable, respectful. We we care for one another enough to feed each other. Um, and we also want to show each other kind of our our best work, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I uh, It was one of the running rules I tried to have for guests was that they it's because I think we fall into the career part sometimes too much. It's that my goal was to have a guest who not only acts in their own best interest, but is able to act in the best interest of their family, of their community, but not only to do that, but to be able to do that over uh, a year five years, 10 years, pass that legacy onto their children, their grand, like to try and live in a way that's harmonious with the community and with themselves um, in a sustainable way. Because you see people who are trying to do like, and this is no slight to mothers, but you can see when a mom is like burning out and she's trying to do so much and she's so exhausted. And like, that's not unfortunately sustainable to be able to give your children the care that you'd like to and that you... Doing that is difficult. Um, and obviously, like, I, I'm not picking on them, but you can see how not being sustainable will make it harder to continue long term. And so trying to find that balance, I think, is important because then you share that and you pass that legacy on to your family um, and your children and your grandchildren so they can all start to live in that harmonious way. And that's sort of what you were just describing, which I think is interesting. The other part is, from my understanding, is there's a that gifting element. It's also a sign of, I think, respect or honor to have given more, that the more you give in those moments places gives you prestige. Uh, would you be able to elaborate or explain where I'm incorrect on that? Um, yeah, the, yeah, that's, um, I think that's where it's really hard to think about. I'm sure that Sandy McKelsey would have talked about this because he is one of the um, wisdom keepers that I interviewed for my research. Um, but the, like, some of the elders talked about it as interest, you know, that you give interest over time. There was a woman from Cowichan who spoke to me about that. And that seems to be a piece that is really fascinating to a lot of the world now, because um, in in my thesis, 
I put together all these different words that came up from the interviews. One of them was interest, debt, savings, insurance, and banking. All those words came up in all the interviews. So I put these words together as a cluster because that's fascinating to me. That's all banking financial language, right? And yet the elders are all speaking about this with regards to ceremony and feast. That's not a coincidence, right? That's a a distinct set of economic transactional language that signals um, the ways that communities are exchanging and and sharing resources. Um, But I'm also really careful that I, that even though English is the words, English is the language in which uh, those concepts have, were explained to me in the interviews, because that's our default language now, that it's not the English word that should take center here, right? When we see, when we use the word debt, we're not talking about debt the way that we understand debt today. We're talking about ancient practices of indebtedness, which is embedded in relationships, right? We talk about debt as being, um, Larry Grant from Musqueam talks about it as intergenerational, that, you know, if you and I create a debt relationship today, that it's unlikely that that will sort of become balanced within our own lifetime. Because what we do through ceremony is we pass on those the memory of those relationships to future generations. And that then creates a structure of so- of social connectedness, right? Of embeddedness with one another so that I am making sure that my children and my children's children, my grandchildren, have good relationships for the future. And the way that I do that is I created that relationship with you today. Um. So that's that's really different, right? We're not we're not talking about accruing debt, um, credit card debt, or anything like that. Um, but that idea of interest always, especially in in international contexts, comes up. Um, especially, there's a lot of shame connected to debt um, in other cultures where interest is is seen to be um, quite dangerous because you can. Uh, it's it's unethical financial practice to have interest because that's the way that you can then kind of cripple, you know, the, um, the language that I use with regards to those original capitalist um, principles is like crippling your neighbor beyond repair, which is a, a competitive practice, which says there's one winner and one loser. And there's no coming out of it. Like you can't, you can't rebuild from that. There's, it's, it's the game is over at that at that stage. Yeah, I think of Money Mart as a really good example exactly. of that because you see the prime customers yeah. are the exact people who will never be like. I just don't understand. Out of all the things, if I could just wave a wand, I would get rid of those businesses because totally I don't. Agree. I don't understand how it's our most vulnerable people who are being sent into right. the worst agreements possible and. 
just end up in this spiral and it's like like you watch any documentary on them it's almost instantaneous that you're stuck in a system that you cannot get out of Mm -hmm. and it just seems malevolent that we allow those to kind of operate within our communities in our downtown communities that typically have those it's not like they say you can have them but you have to have them in nicer neighborhoods with more wealthy people it's like no we put them in the worst spot where people are going to be desperate and need these services it just seems crazy to me Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Paired with that um, praying, you know, praying on vulnerable people. And um, uh, one of the things, too, that came up in the research was also this a, um, this shift from a system. Um, I think it was Kat Penier spoke about this um, from Scowlitz that the shift to from a system of um, freely giving, right? If you come from a society and a structure where um, if I have surplus, I give it away. And then you've got these Western values and principles that start to come into play, are forced upon us. And in fact, we are punished by not adopting those principles um, that that can also that has shown to to have detrimental impacts on our our communities because if if I'm not used to the mindset of accumulation, um, it it looks like I'm poor all the time, even though from an indigenous perspective, I have lots of good relationships, which is a form of wealth as well. So I talk about that a lot too, is like, what is this, this um, paradox of wealth and poverty? Because what we have is two, two very different definitions of wealth and poverty, and they're operating at the same time. It depends though, when you value that and when dominant society diminishes the value of indigenous wealth, right? Yeah, I think of that when I'm talking about Indigenous communities. I always try and be careful to say that, yes, you can look at statistics of uh, living on reserve and the challenges that that can create, but you, what you don't understand and what the literature doesn't what they don't put in the news is, again, those strong bonds I see when you're in community, when you're having dinner with the community. Because, like, this is not to be judgmental, but when I visit my community, there's no judgment if somebody has a stain on their shirt or if their sweatpants don't fit perfectly. There's no care whether it's Gucci or some sort of name that doesn't – that's not of currency. Uh, one of the first times I did, like, a real presentation um, to the community, um, I thought – I was being logical by wearing a suit and tie. A, nobody cared that I was wearing, and I looked like a weirdo for doing so. And I think that there's value in appreciating that. And it was a learning moment for me to be like, right, this, this, I went into this with the wrong mindset. I had a vision of what this was going to be, of what a presentation is. And I just tried to fit the box that I imagined. And when people didn't value that, it made me, it made me grateful. Because it was what I was saying, it was the quality in which I was speaking it that mattered far more. And it was my connection to family, because that's another thing I find so interesting, is so many people ask, what do you do? 
um, in my everyday life. It's like, what do you do for your career? Um, and in indigenous communities, they could care less. It's more about who are you related to? What's your last name? Who's your mom? Who's your grandma? And it's, um, I find that so, um, it's again, another area I think that Canadian culture can learn from indigenous culture because we have this pressure on people to go get a job and go get a career and to make that flashy. But who shouldn't your goal be to be at home with your family? Shouldn't your goal be to have the people in your life love you and care about you and respect you and want to be around you? And we have some lawyers that have decided that they're they're a lawyer and they are not other things. And so they live atrocious lives outside of their legal life because they define themselves as a lawyer and that's it. And so they can treat their children, their family, their community, however they want, because they didn't put stipulations on what that needed to look like. And I think that those people live really empty lives. And I think that um, for all intents and purposes, the people living on reserve who have that family dynamic are living far more rich, fulfilled lives in the quality of the people who are going to show up perhaps at their funeral at the end of their life in comparison to those who figured out how to make a lot of money but didn't figure out how to have people at their, who wanted them around, who respected them and who loved them for their their soul rather than their attitude towards things or their ability to buy an expensive car. And I find that, that really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a general probably judgment on my career, um, being in a dis- in a business school that it's easy to make a lot of assumptions about what that means or what I stand for. You know, I think that that um, maybe it hasn't been said explicitly, but yeah, like I think that that there's a certain expectation that I'm going to be a capitalist or that, you know, and it's often that, that sort of sim- overly simplified. It's just like, um, well, you must, in order to fit in that environment, you must be this or you must be that. Um, of course, like, I mean, I live in a world where there's so rarely um, black and white definitions and that it's always a spectrum in that gray area is what is probably the more interesting um, conversation for me. Um, and I often think like, yeah, like the, you've interviewed a lot of people where they we all sit on so many different parts of that spectrum when it comes to economies and economic development. Everybody's got a different opinion about how to do that, what's the best place to start, Um what's best for our communities and what's best for our nations. Um, how do we think about ourselves as individuals within, within a collective? You know, we all have different definitions of how that's going to play out. Um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting time because there's kind of this push pull, right. Of, you know, who do I want to be and how do I want to act in the world? What will I be remembered for, right? And what does the world need from me? Um, and I I really struggle with this because uh, what the business school needs from me is a lot of work and labor around decolonization, indigenization, what does that mean? How do we work with our non-Indigenous colleagues? How do we transform our pedagogies and our teaching? And, you know, 
how do we think differently about how we are in the classroom? I think that that's all important work. And I'm, I know that on some level I'm committed to that just purely by my role and, and being hired into a business school. On the other hand, what I need as a person to grow in the world and to be my best version of myself is not somebody who does all that work, right? If that was only the work that I did, that's a not, I was, I was not trained to do that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's by virtue of my identity as a, as an indigenous Stalo Lakamal person that they need me to do that. But that is not where my training is. My training is in growing thoughts and theories and digging deep and asking interesting questions. And that's what grows me as a person, as Dara. And that was part of the reason I left Canada as well to, to be really blunt is that I needed, I actually left really explicitly because I needed intellectual freedom and I needed to be away from Canada, away from the Indian Act, away from the entire context of the Indigenous world that we are so entrenched in, in order to just grow as a person. And I knew that at the time when I left Canada. And I, I, I'm i so glad that I did that because I really gained not only a global perspective and all these friendships and, you know, I built a whole network of friends who are now family in New Zealand. Um, but I come back with a lot of clarity around that work that the world needs a lot from me and I'm willing to give some of my energy and some of my time. But I also know that for me to be happy in the world, I have to follow my heart and do what I love, which is not always that that heavy work. That's so fantastic to hear. Can you tell us about how you, because that's really interesting that you say that, that you've been given this perspective of the Indian Act, of what's taken place, of this history, um, and it's like you only get this one perspective. And then perhaps you can hear a perspective that's a shift over one way or the other way, but it's still within that overarching kind of rubric. Um, what did you see in New Zealand that you liked, that you were like, oh, why do, why why don't we do this? Why don't we like have this more balanced approach? Or what did you see there that you liked or didn't like? And what were your shifts in terms of Canada? Are we on the right track? Do you have optimism? Or were you like, we're 20 years? I think they do, from, my, well, from what I've heard, they treat their Indigenous people or have treated their Indigenous people f- far better, far more equally. Am I incorrect? Am I on the right track? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really different context for sure. Um, I, well, there's a, quite a distinct history difference. Um, number one, they're super, super small nation. Um, their indigenous population is generally unified, you know, that, that there is Toreo, the Maori, Maori language that, um, that the from a cultural side of things, there's a um, a general idea of Maori ness, um, Maori tanga is what they call it. What it means to be a Maori person in the world, and there's there's generally a lot of um, agreement on that. Within that, there's a lot of tribal differences, but they are tribal differences, not necessarily like 
as distinct as, you know, Stalo from Anishinaabe, you know, that that's not something that they really have to grapple with. Um, so that, ch- that changes everything quite, quite distinctly because it means that there's Maori language spoken in high schools, you know, for all New Zealanders, you can learn Maori language. It means that um, they take, they've taken more seriously for a long time uh, the Treaty of Waitangi as being this history within New Zealand. Um, that's, that's something that, you know, if you talk to your, they call a non-Maori New Zealanders Pakia. So if you talk to a Pakia person, um, in general, they will have a, an understanding of what that means, right? There's no sort of denying that history, that it's, it's a, there was two versions of that document, Maori language, and, and it was written in English. That is usually what is contested within, um, you know, treaty politics there is, you know, which version did Maori sign the Maori version or the English version? And some tribes signed different versions. Um, so, but what I definitely had this strong sense of was that Maori senses of being are kind of unquestionable, that um, that there are conversations for Maori to have in and among themselves, and that it's nobody else's business to make judgments on those conversations, um, and that there was a lot of certainty and clarity of that this is a Maori conversation and nobody else's business, you know? And so that was often presented in a lot of different ways in a lot of different forms. And I think that is something we haven't quite clarified a lot here um, when it comes to even things like around economic development, um, leadership, you know, we are so entrenched and entangled still with so much of, of Canadian society Um it's hard, I think, to make that statement to say, this is a conversation for us and us alone. And we have to figure that out before we then engage with the outside world, with the corporate sector, with politicians, whatever that looks like. Um, there's a lot of conversations, I think, that we haven't had within our communities amongst ourselves to fill those gaps yet. and. I think when we, those are sort of un, um, threads that are not, they're still frayed, right? Yeah. It's unfinished. And I think we have a lot of that work still left to do before we kind of, you got to crawl before you walk, right? Yeah. And I think we've skipped a lot to straight into running. And that's part of not necessarily our fault. I think a lot of society, and it's that impression that, that indigenous people in North America have fallen behind, that we are, you know, um, we have to catch up is often the narrative, right? Like it's a development discourse that um, we are underdeveloped within a developed country. And it's our job to sort of pick up our bootstraps and catch up with the rest of the world, especially the narrative that, we are a sort of a weight on 
the Canadian conscience, right? That, um, that we need to do it for Canada because we're weighing down the rest of the country, right? There's, it's implicit, but it's there in a lot of media. It's there in a lot of political discourse. So it's not our fault that we have a lot of conversations in that middle space where we need, those are things that every nation has had to navigate and negotiate, but they've had the time to do that. They've had centuries to do that. In fact, there's, um, there's a theory called compressed development um, that talks about this with regards to um, different Asian countries that have also just had to develop on, on a dime, right? Because the rest of the world is sort of like, well, hurry up. But actually that's, you know, it's not fair for us in a lot of ways because we haven't had that space and that breathing time to really grow into our communal selves and, and the people we actually want to be. What are our real aspirations as people? Those are deep questions that we shouldn't be rushing to find an answer for. I've That was really well said. I had, had never looked at it that way, but Inez Louie made a comment um, that she she's the health and wellness director for Shiam First Nation. And one of her comments was like, um, I feel like I'm in these really important meetings where we're making progress. But one of the problems is that you get certain people from other communities who have this mindset of like, this makes me feel bad, so make me feel better about it. That this kind of approach of like, uh, it's been called like white fragility. Um, it's not my favorite term because I think it, limit again, limits it to a, a skin color. But there's a sense of like, I'd like to be, I'd like this to be all make me feel better um, through this meeting. Um, and I've, I've seen it before in other circumstances where people learn about the tragedy and then they want to hear the happy ending. And it's like, well, we're... We're halfway through the story. We're not, the story's not over yet. Um, this is going to land differently for different communities. And so you saying that there's this kind of rush to want to, uh, like you could say that Stephen Harper making his apology was like uh, ripping off the Band-Aid or something, owning it. And then there's since basically then there's been a goal of like, let's all just get back to where we're all at the same point in time as fast as we can because then we can feel better about it and we can move on and we can forget about this or we can put it into our rearview mirror. And right now it feels like people want that kind of the happy ending story. And I just, that's really, that's really insightful to think about because uh, when I'm working on this paper for First Nations Economic Development, one of the most important parts that I didn't expect to, I like doing like papers where I don't. I just have a question, and then finding out later what the answer is. Um, I know some of my colleagues like to have a plan of how their paper is going to be structured, beginning, middle, and end. Um, and so, one of the parts that surprised me was how important. Um, I think it was Tawasin First Nation, Asoyus, and a few other communities said that community planning was the most important part. Economic development corporations are a tool, but that planning part, like everything else, flows from that planning part where you. Bring bring in the community and you have those complex conversations. And they said that took a long time for them to 
build perhaps a shared narrative of where they're going. And that creates more buy-in because a lot of the papers I was seeing basically said the problem is uh, corporations come in and they say, hey, we want to do a development right here. Are you good with that? Are you? And the communities had no chance to process and figure out, does this align with our values? Does it not? What does it look like? Uh, what would we want? What would uh, a reasonable deal look like for us? Um, is this where we want to see ourselves in 30 years, 100 years? Um, there's no preparedness. So those projects end up failing often the community because there was no buy-in. Like, sure, you can offer the community jobs, but if they didn't think that this was in their future, then how are they supposed to want to do those jobs? How are they supposed to see them filling those positions, even if you're offering those opportunities? And and then we get into like money. And if you don't see how the money is going to shape your community, um, my community, we got um, a huge settlement for Seabird Island. And one of the, I talked to chief and council, uh, a few members, and um, trying to understand because immediately when we were proposed a number, our community wanted that put into our pockets. And that places us at a disadvantage, again, when we talk about investing and planning for the future and community development and making sure people are taken care of. There was no desire to do that because there was no proposed plan of what a good outcome would look like. And so people ended up getting around $15,000. And then that was that was gone. Immediately, people bought trucks, they bought cars, they bought new parts for this, that, the other thing. And then the money's gone. And we're in a very similar circumstance to where we were before we received the money, because there wasn't a long term strategy of how do we do this right. And so I've heard um, politicians argue, we just need to give these communities more money. And it's like, to a certain extent, that will alleviate certainly some of the stress, particularly when you think of what the social the social assistance rates are in community. They're not uh, equitable, in my opinion, but you need a plan so the community can develop in a way that they want to. And I think that I'm interested to know your thoughts on that and, and what your research has sort of borne out or, or how your perspective has shifted being a member of La Camel and the kind of seeing what you would like the future to look like. Mm. Um, yeah, La Camel is a really hard one because we have, um, I feel like we have a lot of healing to do uh, uh, for all, a lot of our um, community members, our politics are are pretty cutthroat. I think as as they are with a lot of communities, um, it's not. I think there's a lot of lateral violence, um, and I'm not involved. I'll be honest. Like I'm really, uh, I. It doesn't feel like a safe place. Uh, I'll be honest with regards to. Um, inviting community contributions um, and voices, um, especially from a place of um, of being taken seriously. And I know that that's, that's a, I'm sort of going out on a limb by saying that because I know if, if members of our community would hear that, they'd probably be surprised to hear me say that because there's this impression that our community um operates, I think, in a certain way. And that consensus is like pretty, pretty widespread. But, you know, we've had, um, I, I definitely don't feel safe to, to contribute into that environment. Um, and it's unfortunate because like, as you were talking, I, I think about some of those experiences that I had in New Zealand and had the opportunity to interview, um, 
for a case study on a really fascinating Maori corporation. It's called the Wakatu Incorporation. Um, I didn't write the case, but, you know, I worked, a good friend of mine wrote the case. And um, some of the the incredibly innovative ways that those nations are managing this um, tension between community politics and their corporations. Um, there's so many just interesting ideas that I think we could build on and develop. And um, one of the things that that I often talk about in my classroom is the idea of 500 year planning, you know, that they've, um, and, and it's not a, a, a perfect story either. You know, I, um, there's a talk by one of the elders who helped to set up the Wakatu Incorporation. His name is um, Sir Tippany O'Regan. And it's a beautiful talk. I assign it in my classes where, you know, it's just an audio version. And I say, listen to this, you know, it's uh, over an hour long. And I say, listen to this as if it's a podcast, because he's an incredible orator. The gift of this, this um, oratory is just a beautiful piece of work. Um, but he's talking about the economics of Maori survival and, their long journey from the 80s and their their battle to get these lands and the treaty settlements and they call themselves the treaty people because generations have now been shaped by the struggle the the struggle of this um being in the treaty process and yet now you know Wakatu Incorporation is in aquaculture wineries, um, property development. They've got this um, incredible program where they take uh, their members out to the land and, and it's an immersion program and they're only allowed to speak Toreo um, while on the land. And it's really hard because it's it's based on um, outward bound. And so you've got this outward bound experience that is entirely in a Maori place, uh, and, and it's beautiful. But so all of these are all pieces that are all interconnected with what Wakatu is trying to achieve. Now, some of the tensions that come up is, you know, um, Tiffany O'Regan talks about, okay, so we've made millions of dollars now, millions, and yet not all of our members are fluent in the Maori language. We still have members who are, you know, not properly housed. And so what gives, what is the gap here? Um, if we have supposedly mastered corporate governance, we have supposedly run our businesses like, you know, impeccably, nothing to do with the New Zealand government anymore. We're entirely self-sustaining, entirely self-sufficient. And yet what he's talking about is this different paradigm of what is wealth and poverty, right? Because he's basically saying, if our members can't speak Toreo or be properly housed and we're not taking care of everybody, then some of us are still impoverished. Yet we've got this incredible corporate success. There's something happening and something wrong. And it has nothing to do with whether or not we're good business people, 
because we've proven to the Pakia world that we can do impeccable business. But that is not what our people want at the end of the day. You know, some people do. Obviously, everybody's living a good life to some extent. But if it's that idea that if there's one person who is impoverished, then all of us are impoverished. And so, you know, the rising tide doesn't lift all boats, which is the narrative that folks want us to believe is that, yeah, well, just just get our businesses going. We'll make millions of dollars and our lives will be great. Well, that's not how it pans out. Wow. That's so interesting. And I think it pokes at the idea that like men cannot live by bread alone and like this idea that there is more to life than just the money. Do you like you mentioned this earlier that uh, with Mary, Maori, they, they have like one kind of culture, typically, like they, they can agree on a lot of things. Is that one of the hurdles that you see for um, Canadian First Nations communities, perhaps, is that we're we seem to compete with each other. We seem to compete within communities. It seems to be based on your last name, that that seems to really influence whether or not you're on this team or the other team. Um, and then you expand that out and you see, at least within our area, the Stolo Tribal Council versus the Chiefs Council, um, that there seems to be disconnects that take place. And then um, I might get in trouble for saying this, but the Native Court Workers versus other organizations in terms of funding from the government. And so we want funding for this and then they're trying to convince this minister to give funding to that and then that'll impact us and we seem to start to fight inwards rather than having a collective vision and it sounds like that was the idea of the chief's council then it started people started leaving so what are your thoughts on on that level of politics that you see yeah i mean i think that's very human <laughs> i don't think that there's anything um yeah, like, yeah, that's just a human, a human nature thing, I think. Um, but yes, I mean, I think it goes back to that question of planning, right? Is, is, I think there's a lot to be said for taking time to, to really get to know each other. And the, there's an aspect of respect and trust that, um, can't be, falsified if that makes sense right like you you can't pretend to respect somebody you can't pretend to trust somebody because that then you're not respecting and trusting them so i think that you know there's a lot of um of of you know going through the actions or, or walking through the motions on those things um without actually really committing to to true truth uh, respect and um and in some a lot of respects honesty like like there's a lot of sort of backdoor business uh a lot of saying something and doing something different the the kind of two-faced um actions and behaviors i think there's a lot of self-interested behavior um yeah and it's it, there's not and then transparency is a pretty pretty big issue too because that's what I mean by it not being sort of safe or clear because I feel like I may say something in a spirit of trying to help or trying to um, give new ideas or trying to just 
just share, right? But if if that's seen as being me acting politically or in the interests of the Kellys or in the interests of, you know, something beyond that there's some ulterior motive to what I'm trying to offer. Um, in my view, I think, well, what a waste of time, you know, what a waste of my time. Why would I do that? Why would I want to um, put my energy into that space when it's not going to be taken seriously? And um, it's, it's, it's again, sort of calculating, is this, is this growing what it's supposed to be growing? Is this a place where I'm of the best use <laughs> um, in a lot of ways with regards to knowledge? Does that, does, has that, have you struggled with that? It seems like you're providing perhaps your gifts. This going back earlier to the idea that we're supposed to share our gifts. Has it, have you struggled with feeling like this, like that it would just be nice if you were able to share your knowledge in a, in a good space? And like that must be so discouraging to have gotten all of this education and to feel like the the place where you'd love to do the most good is where you feel like you perhaps you can't. Has that has that been d- difficult? Um, well, the nice thing about my job is that I am actually able to do it in a professional capacity because the classrooms that I teach in now are 90% Indigenous students. They just happen to be from all over Canada. So I am actually offering so much of this incredible knowledge and insights and experience to other Indigenous um, students in Canada. And and I get a lot out of it because what I learn from them is almost as valuable as what they learn from me. It's It's a conversation where I I really try hard to make sure that I honor my role as a continuous learner as well, because I know, you know, I might have a PhD, but that doesn't mean anything. It's a very specific set of knowledge um, that I've gained. It's, um, what's it called? It's like, it's like the um, pointy end of a, of a pin, right? Really is how much knowledge I have. It's very nuanced. Um, but in the scheme of like the world of knowledge, it's so tiny. So I always, I really, um, I know I'm a continuous learner and I always will be. I've always loved the learning process myself. So um, yeah, what I try to facilitate in the classroom is a dialogue. You know, I know there's the students who are coming through my courses are so much more knowledgeable about you know, negotiating contracts, dealing with like big business, you know, in corporate environments on a day-to-day basis. That's not me, right? I'm not, I'm not in the corporate world. I think a lot about it and I talk a lot about the corporate world, but that's not where I was hired. So, um, and I, I'm always trying to stay immersed in sort of the, the edge of, um, the, the new conversations that are emerging. There's a lot coming around sort of green economy stuff, the blue economy. Um, there's a conference that I'm going to be involved with in April about, you know, getting to net zero um, by the First Nations uh, Major Projects Coalition. Um, they're doing incredible work and and just such interesting conversations. 
So, yeah, like I, I really try and then do both. I really think about knowledge as a basket too, like where I'm like, okay, like I put myself into situations where I'm learning all the time, putting more in my basket. And then I, f- I have a physical basket that Manuka gave to me when I was in Auckland. And he said to me, your job is to fill this basket. And that was for my master's degree. But there's um, one of the Maori stories is about the three baskets of knowledge. And the idea is that, you know, whatever you take from that basket, you have to put back. That's how knowledge grows, is that we're constantly innovating with regards to ideas and knowledge and and that. So I'm always thinking, okay, so I go and I take things and I put it in my basket and then I give it to the students, right? I'm constantly offering new ideas, concepts as much as I can right. um, in the classroom. That's really interesting. So you finish your PhD. Do you just come back and start looking for opportunities to work here? Were you tempted to stay there at all? What was your process to ending up at um, SFU? Was there What kind of decisions went into play to get there? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, after I was there for nine years, so I did have like an entire world established in Auckland by that stage, family, friends, um, partner. So it was a hard decision to leave. Um, but also there was uh, the cohort of PhD students that I was um, with in Auckland at the business school. So there was, I think, about six of us who were all finishing our PhDs around the same time, all Indigenous women, Maori, Pacific Islanders. Um, there was a woman from Peru, uh, a woman of Kiowa and Tongan descent. You know, so we all had sort of blended different variations of, of our identities. And um, we were all sort of finding ways to to think about going on the job market and getting a job. And some of us were looking at postdoctoral fellows. Um, yeah, but the opportunities in New Zealand were definitely for Maori and Pacific scholars. So my contribution would have, I would have struggled, I think, to make the case for myself that I was sort of offering value into that space because my research was very specific to Coast Salish. Um, and then I also looked at the job market in Canada and it's scarce for scholars. You know, there's, there's, I think not more than 10 indigenous scholars in Canada, not more than 20, I'd say, or 25 in all of North America. Um, and that's because it's a new, it's a reasonably new discipline, right? Like, um, if you look at the landscape of economic development, and that only goes back to 1990, the landscape of scholarship goes back to 2000 tops, maybe 2005 is when scholars are really starting to pick up research. So um, globally, it's a really new discipline um, for research. So yeah, so there's there's there was no, um, it's not a competitive market right now for scholars, which is very unusual because for business scholars globally, I mean, you're expecting to be competing against like 90, you know, a, 
other folks applying for your job would generally be in the hundreds. Yeah. For positions in Canada right now, if you're a PhD in Indigenous business, you every business school right now wants you because every business school has the same problem. They're suddenly waking up and going, huh, what are we doing around reconciliation? Nothing? Well, what do we do? Where do we start? Do we start with courses? Do we start with students? We need a faculty member. They immediately go into like the HR sort of like filling bodies and bums and seats and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that's very difficult when you don't have a market of, uh, of potential faculty. You have to have a PhD in order to be a faculty member. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's my advertising campaign for uh, bringing in, I'm, I'm trying to nurture as much as possible new scholars in this area. At the moment, there's one PhD um, student at the BD school. She's Métis. Um, there's, I think, about six across Canada right now, all doing their PhDs. Um, I mean, it's a perfect time. They're, they're going to be in hot demand across the country. That's awesome. Were you excited to work with SFU? Was was there a preference there in terms of being able to work with them at all? Like, um, Or were you looking at UBC or UVic? Was there any preferences at all? Yeah, I think that has to do with uh, some politics around where business schools are located. Um, not every university has a business school, so... Um, yeah, I I interviewed at another I had three three interviews basically at three different business schools. Um it is a factor that SFU is close to Coast Salish territories that it's in Vancouver where I grew up. There's a lot there that I contemplated in terms of like being able to engage my networks um within that business school environment whereas if I was in a business school say in the prairies I would have to rebuild all those networks in order to bring that knowledge into the classroom, connect with the students in the classroom. Um, that I would have had to do a lot of work, right? Whereas coming into the Beatty School, I already, as an alma mater of UBC, had all those networks. It's familiar. Um, connecting with, you know, members of MST, Musqueam, Squamish, Thilwitooth was is a little easier for me because I, I just know more people. Um, yeah, so it was definitely a factor with regards to my identity to select BD. Um, but a very big factor also is the climate in which I was thinking about my development as a scholar because there are business schools that are not as that are hostile, let's just say, to Indigenous knowledges because it's it's new. There's no guarantee that you're going to be publishing in very high journals. Um, and I think that those business schools will really struggle to create that space. Um, so UBC is one of them where Sauter School is very competitive. Um, and my experience in that environment is they care a lot about the rankings of their journals. And it has everything to do with the fact that they are a tier one university and 
they're competing also with U of T Business School, their rankings for business schools. So those politics matter, right? Because UBC professors in the business school were not as as sort of interested or willing to engage with Indigenous knowledge because it would impact their rankings. That to normal people sounds like just nonsense because like for people who don't go to business school they could care less they just want to make sure that people are getting educated they're getting the tools to succeed but when universities are competing with other universities it's like the average person could care less and that may impact grants or something but like you your university does not resonate with people when that is its priority is how it's ranked against other schools it doesn't resonate with those like the average person does not go to university and so the average like community doesn't care about what you're ranked and so when you think of like at scale it seems odd to me when when that's the priority because you want the dream would be to have the most successful students with the most um balanced understandings that are capable of making a great difference and pointing us in the right direction. And I see, um, I'm always trying to keep an eye out for guests. And when I see that they're ranked in this or that, or they've won some stupid award by some organization that nobody cares about, it's like, you've accomplished nothing. Like you've not convinced me that you're worth interviewing, that I'd spend three hours talking to you because it seems like all you care about is yourself and your own success. And having that on your LinkedIn page that you are the number one ranked in this magazine that nobody reads like it just seems crazy to me when when universities choose that path because I look at universities I went to UFE and I loved the the relationship building but also those lasting connections and gotta be honest I'm not feeling those lasting connections from UBC and that seems short-sighted on their end because they've been more than happy to uh to highlight the work I've done um, f- to market themselves. But uh, when I've asked, when I've needed help, I'm less interested in those moments. And that might be unpopular to say, but I don't really care because I'm graduating in like a month. So um, what is what is your class like? What, do you, what is the information that people can expect to learn um, when they attend um, BD Business School in, in your class? Um. I also should just say in general, as a general rule, business schools are often kind of the cash cow of a lot of universities. So there's that too. There's kind of this like cachet of um, that universities need business schools to keep other programs afloat that are not as lucrative. So I don't know. There's there's a whole there's a whole economy of business schools operating as well within university environments. Just wanted to say that because I also like, I don't want to make it seem like, you know, BD schools, the best. And, you know, it's, there's politics in every university and every, every school. Um, And, and also I'm sure you're familiar with too, is like, there's the politics of the professional, the professional schools, medical schools, law schools, business schools, as compared to like, I don't know, yeah, the humanities and things like that. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot going on there. Um, but okay, so we'll just put that aside. So I, yeah, I teach in, like I said, um, we have an executive MBA in Indigenous Business and Leadership. Many of the, uh, many of the Stalo um, folks who went through our program graduated before I got there, we do have some new Stalo uh, folks coming through, but um, 
like David Jimmy, I know, you know, graduated well before and Otis Jasper also. Um, so our, so I teach in the executive MBA. I teach a course in indigenous leadership, which is, you know, the, the first course that they take within that degree. Um, and I taught a new course this fall on indigenous economies. Um, these are all really exciting because both these topics obviously are in my research areas. So I get a lot out of being able to bring all of that knowledge through those courses. Um, and hopefully, you know, when I, so I wrote an article on ancestral leadership, which is a lot of what I described. I love being able to bring my own work into the classroom and, and it's something I'm so proud of, you know, being able to write an academic article is, you know, very dry and uh, very disheartening process most of the time. But that article that I wrote on ancestral leadership is just something that I, it's so close to my heart, that experience of collecting that data. So really exciting to be able to do that. Um, beyond that, I also teach within our part-time MBAs and full-time MBAs. These are the part-time MBAs are more domestic Canadian students. Um, full-time MBAs generally are international students. Um, and those courses are um, like a survey course on Indigenous business environments. And those are har harder in some ways because they're non-Indigenous audiences. Um, what I try to do with both of those is really connect to the global work. Um, there's some some incredible scholars who are advancing in Indigenous rights. There's a book that I use called Indigenous Rights and Aspirations. Um, it's a book of cases, and it's really talking about, like, you know, the bare minimum standards approach to economic development from a corporate perspective versus Indigenous, indigenous aspirations as being that world of Indigenous potential, Indigenous opportunity, Indigenous innovation, entrepreneurship, all the exciting work of Indigenous peoples being able to forge and, and drive new paths that are not based on that sad, terrible legacy that we've inherited. You know, it's it's folks who are creating a new world for us. And it's I love it. That's so interesting. Can you tell us about um, perhaps those courses, particularly the one regarding um, historic Indigenous economies? Um, what are your understand? What would a student, uh, what's the sort of journey over, I imagine, a 12-week process? Um, Our courses are very short. Okay. MBA courses are generally really short. So uh, those courses are only five weeks long. Okay. Or five modules is sort of how we think about it. Um and it's so the first iteration is I don't know if my students will appreciate this, but the first iteration of every course, I think, for every instructor, if you create a brand new course from scratch, it's always sort of a testing ground. You know, you never really know if it's gonna fly. But what I um, try to highlight, I usually build it around themes. Um, I choose to think about economic freedom 
and economic unfreedom. That was a theoretical perspective I brought into my PhD. So I try and sort of flesh that out with students and think about, you know, how would we think about that from the work that they're doing in community and and in the corporate sector or different industries, you know, what is economic unfreedom? Where does where does that come from? Because we um, can think about that in a lot of different ways. Um, we actually partnered with uh, UVic Law School. Uh, one of the courses was uh, the, the instructor is uh, Rebecca Johnson. She um, is working with some incredible legal scholars. Val Napoleon is one of them. And uh, Rebecca Johnson wrote a book chapter with a member of Sequetin community. Her name is Bonnie, and I'm struggling to remember her last name. Um, and it's called Coyote and the Cannibal Boy. Beautiful story. And uh, they've, they've really fleshed out this kind of um, the corporate legal story alongside this um, this community story. It's a beautiful, I highly recommend reading this book chapter. I can send it to you later if you want. I would be more than happy to, yeah. It's amazing. It's a, it's incredible. So, But yeah, we talk about it in terms of the corporate body, like um, uh, the corporate person and, and what that means and some of the ethics around that. Um, what else? Yeah, we talk a little bit about things like IBAs, um, not that's not really my my, my what's an IBA oh impact benefit agreement okay um but there's also like different you know there's there's newer sort of innovations around those things um what else so we do kind of um what I wanted was to have assignments where you know students bring their own experts in because they're coming from all over Canada. And so there's such a range of, of expertise around economic development. So I get them to invite their own experts into the classroom as a presentation. That's really a good idea. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, the last thing I want is for a student to leave my class and be like, oh, like we didn't get to explore this one thing that I really um, love. So they get to, that's their opportunity basically to, if they want to talk about investment practices and policies, then they can, you know, bring that perspective in. That is really interesting. Uh, is there a community that you admire that you think sets a really good example? Uh, for me, I always look at um, different communities. Obviously, Squiala stands out. Shiacton stands out. Um, Stahelis is another one that I really think is doing a good job on the back-end planning phase. But I'm just interested in um, what do you – are you able to see different communities and, and admire different qualities about them? Um, do you mean with, with regards to this course or just in general? Just in general. Um, I feel like I haven't had – like in terms of – Communities also in the Lower Mainland, where or anywhere, anywhere you like. Um, I mean, I bring in some guest speakers from Tawasin. So, um, talking about so Andrew Bach, I bring in as a guest speaker, and he was part of the um, treaty process for Tawasin, and he comes in and he talks about like 
the relationship that they they built with the um, the developer for Tawasan Mills. Um, the development itself may or is you know it may or may not be the most exciting or innovative um, project, but I like to hear about the approach of how to engage with community conversations in order to get there. It's really about the process by which they, um, yeah, the by which that they they were bringing um, sort of decision making and consensus to life. Um, yeah, but I, aside from that, I don't I don't have very many local examples. I think like I'm always drawing on Maori examples and thinking more about theory. Yeah, than, fair enough. Yeah, I'm interested to know. Do you uh, do you enjoy watching entrepreneurship at all? I know, like it obviously aligns with your work because I just again I look at work like Raven Reads and it it lights a a fire underneath me to feel like, well, how do we move forward? Um, right now, I'm working on a, a business plan for an indigenous restaurant here in the Lower Mainland, because I think that uh, when we're having these conversations about reconciliation, I think that there's a space to start exporting our culture to other communities so they can try our food, they can learn about our language, they can learn about some of our traditions in really accessible, simple ways. And so do you enjoy watching indigenous entrepreneurship? Do you have any that you're a fan of at all? Yeah, um, so I have a research project where we're, we're, we're calling it, well, there's two sort of pieces of the project. One is um, telling Indigenous um, business stories, and the other part is decolonizing the business case. So one is very distinctly like changing how we teach business cases in the classroom, and the way that we're doing that is writing Indigenous business cases. Um, so... We've. This is a project I really love, and I'm presenting on Tuesday at our SFU library about it. Um, but yeah, they're one of the businesses is um, an Inuit business, um, Wasa Soaps, and her story is is just incredible about how she's using um, Inuit knowledge to to create soaps and body products and some of the kind of the decolonizing within that process is um, about reclaiming whale blubber that because of colonization had been um, seen as a waste product and turning that into a product. And now her business is booming and she's, you know, she's really taking off. So I love that because it's, that's in my mind, often the role of the entrepreneur is not just thinking, how can I make money? It's, it's about expanding, like, in the theory, you know, entrepreneurship theory is all about how entrepreneurs expand the bounds of what's possible in our economies. They move into places where, you know, the market would say there's no market there. Or, um, you know, it's impossible because we've never done that before. But entrepreneurs are those risk takers and, you know, always pushing those boundaries. So, yeah, it's really interesting because I love to hear what that actually looks like on the ground. Um, even though I'm not an entrepreneurship scholarship, it's, it's a piece of that economic story that is always fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, it's really inspiring just to watch people have ideas and approaches that you might not have considered. Uh, do you at all have any role models within your academic field that you perhaps look up to within BC at all? Like, uh, I know Carol Ann Hilton has become uh, very prominent uh, in regards to, I think, she, what she calls indigenomics. Um, is, who do you enjoy looking up to or, or keeping up with within uh, the development sphere? Yeah, um, I just saw Carol Ann the other day. Actually, she was um, she's in the in the city, and I believe that she's she's part of a project with um, like a, an indigenous dragon's den um, kind of project. I think they're yeah reward, awarding a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow. I think to wow. Yeah, I I don't know. She was just telling me about it. Um, yeah, so. I think, let's see, um, I, don't, I don't know if I have any one person that, that is really sort of standing out. I think, like, um, there's, um, there's people who are at the front, and then there's also sort of behind-the-scenes folks as well. And I really think about a lot of uh, the work that is happening that we can't necessarily see. Um, one uh, that comes to mind is, is Jordy Hungerford. He's um, uh, someone who is, yeah, not often at the front of the stage or, you know, the loudest voice, but he's, he's doing a lot of work in the background um, around shaping um, kind of the, the culture of... Um, of uh, regulatory environments around Indigenous economics. So, yeah, he's um, somebody really fascinating, and um, I like connecting with him every now and again. Um, who else? Yeah, I sort of also keep in touch, like, through my dad, through the, the folks that he's working with. Right. He's more in a kind of, like... Um, policy um yeah kind of changing political landscapes interesting yeah do you feel like we're moving in the right direction that uh we've experienced a lot of negativity trauma abuse do you feel like it's upwards from here do you have confidence that uh everything is looking positive overall um obviously we're going to have squabbles and issues but do you feel like our general direction is upwards that we can have hope that we're we're taking the right steps forward yeah i think that um the the sort of climate the kind of conversations that i am witnessing within my workplace but also um more broadly are i've i've never gotten a sense that that people are as sort of interested and in taking indigenous conversations as seriously as they are now um i i have a lot of feelings about that i think um, like I said, I, I think I always want to be really conscious and respectful of that, that right to take our time with where we need to go and how we need to go together, um, within 
yeah, being able to navigate this 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 new um I really don't want to use the word world. It's not a new world. It's a it's a new way of being together in our nations, in our families, in our communities and in this place that we now call Canada. Um I th- I don't know if I could say that it's a general upward trend because I think, you know, we have these these sliding moments backwards too all the time and it's sort of that thing of two steps forward, one step back. Um, and I think what I'm interested in is Indigenous resilience, you know, that, that I see that. I see Indigenous resilience becoming um, really incredible and um, and this um, sort of un- unquestioning commitment to future generations and to a an, an ethical space that we all can and want to live in, which is the definition of freedom that I work with in my theory is, you know, what is economic freedom? It's freedom to live lives we can and want to value. The fact that you want to be in your life and that you get to choose what it is you value in your life. Um, that excites me. That's really um, such an open space for all of us to grow and develop and just be the people we really want to become. Yeah, I really hope to uh, watch this um, Indigenous version of Dragon's Den because I think the resilience that you're talking about, uh, it needs to be the new conversation. Um, There is a place to understand the history, but now it's time to understand um, how badass Indigenous people are, how cool it is that we have gone through such uh, atrocities and that we are continually turning it around. And at such a pace that's because often what's talked about is like 1996 closure of the last residential school, to think that we're in 2022 now and the changes that have taken place since then, the leadership, the voices that are starting to arise, uh, despite um, all the adversity that those families and those communities have faced, uh, you should have a lot more respect for these communities. Uh, Dara, I am so grateful that we were able to record this. I'm I was looking forward to this uh, since the very beginning. I think that your work is so inspirational. Uh, I have learned a lot, not only in this interview, but from your work um, in developing my understandings of these topics and trying to uh, support my own community. I think that uh, you are a beacon of light in a topic that is under-researched and and not as understood as I think it it can be. And so I'm so grateful that you're willing to come all the way out here. I know that it was quite the trek. And so I really appreciate you being willing to take the time and to share such an amazing story uh, and journey. And I just, I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing in lifting so many students up so that they can go make a difference in their own community. Hi, Chika. Thank you so much, Erin. And we just did uh, three hours and 10 minutes. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs>